Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 849, with Peter Lazar. What do those leaders know, independent chain restaurant leaders, that the rest of us don't know? I want to know that. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food cost in real time. Margin Edge gives you your prime cost daily, so there's no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets instant insights to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends with supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge is going to cover your onboarding costs. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. Today's episode is brought to you by DiagioBarAcademy.com, and I cannot be more excited to be partnering with Diageo because we have such similar missions. We want to share knowledge and transform the industry. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better They are consistently raising the bar on industry standards, and no matter what your skill level is or knowledge or availability, there's something for you at DiagioBarAcademy.com. They have master classes and live events, and if you can't make those master classes or live events, there's recordings, so you can watch it on demand at your convenience at www.DiagioBarAcademy.com. That is D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Get over there. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder that this podcast does need your support. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast with everybody and anyone you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. And you can come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Today, we're talking to Peter Lazar, and he's the founder of Restaurant Development Theory and the author of Restaurant Strong, the first principles of restaurant outperformance and how to make them work for you. So straight up, uh, Peter reached out to me because he wanted me to know about his book, and I, I got his book and 
honestly, I didn't get much past the first few pages before I, I decided to buy a ticket and head down to Tampa, Florida and straight up like the, it wasn't even, it was the first page. It was one of the first pages uh, on the introduction of his book or the, the introduction section of his book in big, bold print bridging the knowledge gap is what stood out to me. And I was like, okay, Maybe this isn't enough of, of a, a reason to get in a plane and fly to Tampa, but it was for me. And uh, I kind of thumbed through the book thereafter, and there's a lot of just like headliners that stood out to me. And I was thinking to myself, this guy and I, we align. So I, I actually read the majority of this book the day before my flight and while on the flight down to Tampa. And I'm happy I did. I really enjoyed this book, and it really reinforced a lot of the things that I've discovered in my study of restaurant tours. So Peter and I are, are, we have a lot in common in the sense that we've dedicated our lives over the past 10 years to studying successful restaurant tours. And it was just really refreshing to find somebody else who echoes a lot of the same sentiments I do. And a little bit more about Peter. He uh, co-founded two restaurants in Panama, uh, Donde Jose, which was recognized by the world's 50 best restaurants discovery series as one of the 50 next generation dining destinations. He also co-founded Lokei, named as one of the 50 best new restaurant openings throughout the Americas. On top of this, Peter has operated publicly traded hospitality companies, both as interim CEO and long-term CFO. This first company I'm talking about, the publicly trading company, did $125 million of revenue with 5,000 employees and operated in seven countries. Uh, Before this, he was the president of an Asian hospitality company with 50 plus million in revenue and 1,350 employees. So this guy, we should listen to him. I feel like he... He's worth listening to. I really enjoyed his book. I think you should go out and get it. And after listening to this interview, I'm sure you will. Actually, after listening to this interview, you'll find out how you can get a free copy of this book. So a little teaser. Make sure you stick around to the end to find out how you can get a copy of his book. Here he is, Peter Lazar. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, the author of Restaurant Strong, The First Principles of Restaurant Outperformance, Peter Lazar. My man, Peter, are you feeling unstoppable today? I I am. I've got a lot of energy for (laughs) hanging out with you today and... You just served me a great cup of coffee, and uh, you know I'm just jived to talk to your talk to your team. I'm excited to, to have you, man, and I really did enjoy your book. I should have held up the book as I was reading the title for the camera, but it's right here again. Restaurant strong: the principles, the first principles of restaurant outperformance, and how to make them work for you. Um, so, a little backstory: like you reached out to me to let me know about your book, yes. and I and I. After just looking into the, the the book, and I think you sent me a PDF of the book as well, and I think I, I don't remember how I saw it, but like in the first chapter, I think I remember opening it up, and I think the something about the first, yeah, the introduction is what caught me, and I was like, I want to get this guy on the show because the the very first words in your book are bridging the knowledge gap, right? And that struck a chord with me because that's exactly why we're here. We're here to bridge the knowledge gap between the industry's most successful restaurant tours yeah. and the next generation. So I'm like, okay. This guy and I are aligned. I knew from the very beginning. And um, <laughs> funny enough, uh, so it, it was a week ago that I first reset. Like when we, I said. Well, to, for this trip? Yes, a week ago. It was even a week ago, was yeah. it? It was like less than a week ago or just yeah. exactly a week ago. Right around there. Um, I was like, are you available next week? And I just <laughs> came down to, to Tampa. And in my mind, um, 
I knew that I was going to have to read two books over the next seven days. You're uh, amazing. I, I mean, a lot of people do that normally, but that's hard for me. I'm, I'm, I'm the guy that reads with one finger on the page all the time, but I powered through. Uh, I, I made it to the last chapter. I did not finish the last chapter, but I made it through the last, like almost the last chapter. And I loved this book, man. I really did. Well, I appreciate that. That means um, a lot. But in the back of my mind, I was I was thinking to myself, like, okay, I'm going to fly down. And the day before and during the flight down, I'll have time to go through and read the book. And I'll I'll figure out your entire life story. And I'll know exactly the restaurants you owned and operated and the businesses yeah. you were a part of. And you don't mention it in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sitting here and I know all of your values, a lot of your beliefs, but I still don't know who you are. And yeah. we spent the day together today. Yeah. And I still don't know who you are because every time you started to tell me, I'm like, don't tell me yet. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to know. I want to know. A, it's a funky story. Yeah. I, I want it to come out. I, I want to be curious. I want it to come out organically during the podcast. So I'm finally getting to pull back the layers on so, you. So I kept them out of the book so you wouldn't know my backstory by the time we came here. That's the whole purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited to finally be able to dive into it because I feel like I like to ask questions and be taking interest in people when I meet them. And I haven't been able to do that with you yet. Uh, do we, but before we dive into who you are yeah. and to why you wrote the book, uh, let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us so taking from this idea of the the knowledge gap uh the mantra that i use for myself is that uh, actually there's a lot more that we don't know about our own uh, spot in the world than we even realize we don't know so as an example right if you're a coffee shop today and you have an individual coffee shop you probably know 1% of what Starbucks really knows, right? Mm -hmm. And me as a first-time author, I probably still only know 1% of what Malcolm Gladwell knows about writing a really great book, right? And, um, and we have to keep that level of what we don't know in the top of our head in order to keep trying to make that journey, right? Yes, and I'm listening to you talk. I'm pretty sure I wrote in the margins of your book the more I learn, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. And that is like one of the biggest lessons I learned when I thought that like, oh, I'm going to start a podcast. Yeah. I'm going to talk to like 100 restaurant owners right. and I'm going to have all the <laughs> secrets figured out. Yeah. And then I got to 100 episodes. I was like, maybe it's going to take another 100. And I got to 200 episodes. And I'm like, maybe it's going to take another 200. And I'm at 850 episodes yeah, now. And I'm amazing. still just like, I still, I have ideas. I have thoughts. I have beliefs. But I still, the more I, I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. Well, and, and the amazing thing is it's, it's not just about things that are external to our, our life experience, but, uh, you know, let's just talk about Joe, Joe Rogan. There's something that Joe Rogan learned that is that, and of course you're in a very niche industry, but there's, there's something that he learned that is, is something you can observe to keep crossing that, that bridge to a, a higher, higher levels of audiences and so forth, right? And, uh, and I had to look to our restaurant leaders to really understand what those gaps are that we don't know, right? Uh, because too many of us in this business, and I, I was one of them, sort of think we know most of what we need to know. And the truth is, to get to those next levels, we are falling short. Yeah. Um, and the other, I think, thing that kind of does tie to that is you start to learn things and you think you have an answer. And then before you, you realize it, you start to hear the complete opposite as a truth. Yeah. And then it, that, that seems to come up time and time again, where you hear something and then you hear something that's the complete opposite. And you're like, which one is it? You know? Yes. And the truth is it's all right. Sometimes 
depends on who you are and what your what your values are and what your objectives are, uh, which is not completely the the solution to that. But I feel like that plays into it. What are your thoughts there? Uh, well, I mean, if we're just talking big picture without any examples yet, a lot of times the the truths of the day are are the truths of uh, sort of marginal outcomes because so many people are believing in the same thing, yeah. right? That you can't stand out. And and that's when all of a sudden somebody comes along and shows us a new truth, which, oh, yeah, that's actually true. Yeah. But they're out on their own, right? And I know we're going to get into some of that today. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that is, that's a plague on, on, on our industry. And, again, I, I fell for it as well. We see all these models that are performing more or less like ourselves, and we believe what they're doing is truth. But we're not getting better results than than we want. Well, for the longest time, the only place you had to go to get answers about how to be successful in the industry was from somebody who was in the industry who was successful. Yeah. But they just copied and pasted the person before them, and so on and so on for about a hundred years. So we're still operating the same we we have been for for like a century, like or literally a century. You know, Eric, this is going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, so like it's it's weird. Like yeah, uh, totally I think, and this is just the success quote mantra. We haven't even started to dive into who you are yeah. and how you got to this point to be able to, to to collect all this information. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Like where like you, I mean, I got to find out a little bit about who you are and where you're from today. Right. But we didn't get into any of the hospitality stuff. So. um uh, you want me to start way back of, of my story? Okay, I know you're from Ohio. Real quick, just yeah. kind of like get into like a little bit of that uh, path. Yeah, so I, um, we all have different paths, right? And yeah. we're all very unique. And, and of course, those paths are steered by uh, the people who raise us, right, for the longest time. And and my uh, my grandparents, um, both sides of the family, were both from small towns in Ohio, right? But uh, my parents were... Uh, Kennedy Democrats, okay, in, in the 60s, and probably the first Democrats they've ever had in their extended families. And so my father became a doc like his father, but went into international health, right? And so we ended up, he started as a Green Beret doc, and we, we sort of moved around the United States, but then we ended up in Afghanistan. And we ended up in Afghanistan in 1977. Now, I know your cameras are making me look a lot younger than I am. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, we're in Afghanistan, 1977. And to give you the historical context, uh, uh, the Soviet union had not come into Afghanistan yet. If you're sort of people listening, remember the, the history, right? Uh, but in 1978, the American ambassador was kidnapped and killed. And that was a big thing around the world because it's very rare. I mean, the, the last time that happened was uh, when Hillary was Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. So that happens every 40, 50 years, right? It's a, a real good way to prove a point, right? Well, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So our, our ambassador, who was very close uh, to the American community there because it was very small, was kidnapped and killed in 1978. And, and then in 1979, the first Soviet advisor started to come in, and, uh, and there was a coup d'etat, Okay. And we were under, uh, we were basically under a, a curfew, a dawn to dust curfew, and uh, couldn't go out uh, at all at night. They were literally like shooting people. Okay, and uh, when we traveled to school, when we finally go back to school, we traveled to school. We would have a van full of guys with machine guns following us to protect us. Jeez. <laughs> that was our school bus uh, trip, and. Uh, and it was a very different uh, experience for a kid who was basically, you know, ten, eleven at the time, right? 
this is a total sidetrack, but yeah. I got to kind of point out the irony and the difference of level of tolerance for risk in 1970 versus 2021, where yeah. you still went to school. Well, it's not, with a, it's not mach- just that. machine gun. Like. It's not just that, but there's a, a little story in the book, which you'll probably remember. Reasonably soon after the coup, my parents let me go back out in the streets. Yeah. Even though there was a curfew and there was... It, and I spent... All my waking day, hours pretty much out in the streets hanging out with my, my friend, going back and forth between our houses, which were a number of blocks away, going to the local market to get some kebab and some naan. And uh, uh, and even in our neighborhood where I live today, you know, parents don't want their kids going more than a few blocks away. I know. It's crazy. We live in the time. It's literally never been safer. There's yeah. never been a point in time where it's been safer. And totally I, true. And at the same time, we are more scared than ever before. Yes. Um, and not to go down a rabbit hole, but I had to just use that as a, an example. Well, of so perspective. I, I, I think that that perspective uh, marks uh, most of my personal story because I ended up uh, just innately because of the experiences my parents put me through uh, to become a risk taker and a person who was traveling around the world uh, putting together businesses. And, uh, and I learned a lot about restaurants uh, uh, based on what people were doing in other countries, right? Uh, and less what they were doing in the States at the time, right? And I could really see the dichotomies. Yeah. It was very interesting. I mean, just in my short period of time in Thailand, like you yeah. see like <laughs> a lot of what's trending now in, in our economy, like this isn't new. This is what all these other nations have been doing, focusing on like on one thing really well, keeping it simple, right? Yes. Uh, which is now just finally coming into like the scope in our industry, or, or at least in the states, where people are starting to like streamline process and stuff like that. But anyway, yeah, absolutely. So really quick, so you, you talked to us in, in 1977. You were in Afghanistan. Uh, 79. We, we moved to India. Okay. Uh, and I did uh, I did three years in India until I was about 14. And um, and that was also an incredible experience. And then we, um, uh, well, before Afghanistan, we were in Hawaii for three years. And after India, we moved to uh, to Boston. And that's where I, I ended up doing uh, most of my high school. Okay. Um, and uh, then I spent a year of high school in, in, uh, in Paris. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I spent, um, then I went off to, to college. Uh, in Connecticut, and I ended up doing a year in Japan. So those are pretty typical. A lot of kids uh, do a year abroad. Um, but then I went and worked for a large law firm in in D.C. for two years. What did you I, study in college? Yeah, so I studied – I don't want to misquote because I can never remember exactly. I majored in Asian studies and Japanese, and I minor, minored in economics. Okay. Yeah, totally unrelated to everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, economics I feel like is yeah. a great – foundation for business right understanding oh, ab- absolutely economy and and, uh, and asian studies was sort of a, a catch-all for studying a lot of different uh, uh topics uh around what was going on in asia uh, uh at the time so um uh that was helpful but i you know i i'd spent so many years growing up in asia that i wanted to i thought i wanted to be an asia asia guy the rest of my life right and me, um, it's like the wild wild west over there yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, a lot of my life stories are, are, are out of Asia, and that's just sort of fundamental to, to who, I, who I became. But uh, after college, 
I went and worked uh, in the lobbying group uh, as basically as a paralegal to the lobbying group of a uh, of a Washington D.C. law firm, and I stayed two years. And I bought a four by four out of auction with the help of my grandfather in Ohio. Cost me two thousand four hundred dollars a uh, uh, Ford Bronco, nineteen eighty four. Ooh, sexy. <laughs> yeah, very sexy. And with my French girlfriend. Uh, we spent three months driving down to Panama and camping uh, the oh whole way. Yeah, and uh, and I ended up living overseas from the time I was about twenty five uh, until I was about forty eight. Okay, another side question, but I've I've often thought about driving to South America. Yes, and I look at the maps. Yes, <laughs> and I'm like, can I even drive to South America? Is it possible? Sort of. You can drive to Panama, and then between Panama and Colombia, uh, which is the first country uh, in South America, there's the Darien jungle, which ha- there are no roads that go through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm looking. I'm like, there's literally no roads, or maybe they just don't want us to know where the roads are. As well, no, there are, there are absolutely no roads. Okay. It's just this massive, very dense jungle, and it's a geopolitical issue because, to some extent, the U.S. doesn't want a road going through that jungle because then you, all sorts of goods can more easily come yeah. up, Okay. Um, and to some extent, Panama doesn't want uh, the road. Because they're the first one that's going to... Yeah, South America wants the road. Of course they do. Right? Uh, and uh, and there's also a grave sort of ecological issues because when you put a road through a jungle, it's not just the width of the road, but the whole jungle starts to get eaten out as people sort of move into the areas, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's one of the most biodiverse places on the planet with lots of indigenous populations of people still living there. So... Uh, so you can't. Okay. Yeah. It's not a bad thing, I don't think. But no, no, it's a good thing. I was curious because, because I was like, how? how? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been I've been down in that area many times, and it is, uh, it's uh, something from Raiders of the Lost Ark, or it's just uh, feels 100 years old still. I would love to go see that. Um, so this is your first uh, for What's the word I'm looking for? Four-way? 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 Not, not four-way. <laughs> um, yes, that was the word I was looking for. Um, into Panama, because you, you ended up coming back to Panama later in your story, so I'll, I'll save yeah. that as a teaser. Yeah. But this is, is this when you fell in love with Panama? Yeah, I love, I, I, I've loved pretty much every country I've ever lived in, and uh, but I would say that um, uh, most of all for countries that were not native to, 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 to me, uh, which is the United States, Panama was was by far the most, but that has to do with you fall in love with the people and you fall in love with the advantages and the 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 humanity of the place and the errors of the government and you know you just fall in love with everything. It's like being in a relationship. You yeah. know, we all have strengths and weaknesses, and you love the person for who they are, and and that's sort of how my love for Panama came yeah. about. We're gonna come back to Panama. Yes. Uh, so after Panama, what's going on? So in Panama, something unusual happened. And um, first of all, I got together with some guys and we started the first ecotourism operator in Panama before anybody even heard the term ecotourism. So Costa Rica was barely on the map. And uh, we had uh, no tourists. That was the problem. It was too soon after Noriega. If everybody remembers Noriega, right? Who was the ex-dictator. And so we lost money seven months of the year and we broke even five months of the year. And we ended up uh, selling it basically to get our get our money out and um, and then I started with a bunch of Panamanian uh, business people, a company that was representing 
American and European companies in the privatizations of Panamanian state assets like electricity and water and so forth, right? And uh, and through that process, I ended up having this little client named Thunderbird, okay, that was based out of California, and uh, and I started to get to, to know these guys, and we um, uh, uh, they were basically at the time a an advisor to the tribal gaming in California. Okay. And so they knew a lot about gaming. They knew a lot about hospitality. They knew a lot about restaurants. And, um, uh, but they were, uh, an unsuccessful business. Okay. Because there were all sorts of legal issues in California around if you're not Indian, can you participate in those, in those tribal businesses or not? Right. And so, uh, they became my, my client in Panama for the privatization of gaming assets in Panama, the state-owned casinos, okay? And uh, and we ended up winning that privatization, okay? And from there, we took a company that was five people, and we started building resort properties in Asia and Latin America with uh, large hotels, golf courses in, in a couple of cases, uh, um, uh, secondary homes, uh, gaming when it applied, Bars, restaurants. Um, so this is like your first like yeah. dive into this is my first. Yeah, my first dive. Okay, this is where it all starts. How this old is where this all the errors uh, started. Twenty-five yeah. to thirty. That so that range? by then I was getting closer to thirty. So I might have been twenty-eight or so, something like that. At this point, is it is it in your mind that this is what you want to do? That you love the no, world of hospitality? No, like, what, no, no. I had no idea. What's your like? What's your angle at this point? What are you trying to do? So. Um, do you remember what you dreamed of being when you were a little boy? Yeah. What was it? A commercial pilot, and uh, that didn't work out. Okay. So, <laughs> so we all have these these little little yeah. boy dreams, yeah. right? And um, and my little boy dream was I wanted to be an I'm putting up air quotes for those who can't see this an international businessman. Yeah. Okay. And I was I I didn't really care about the sector, frankly. I I didn't have a passion yet for a specific area. Does that yeah. make sense? And um. Uh, and I didn't even know what an international businessman meant. I mean, what does that really mean at the end of the day? I guess you start businesses internationally, right? What was the appeal? Well, the appeal was that uh, my father had always been sort of on the diplomatic public health uh, uh, side. And um, and I would – we all have these models in our lives when we're, when we're kids. And I would see these guys that were sort of in our communities that were, were you know Americans or Swedish or whoever they were who were the guys who were representing the major corporations in those countries, right? And they always seemed to be living a better life. We lived a fantastic life. They always seemed to be living a better life than us, right? They yeah. like more flexibility uh, in their lives. And so I thought that looks that's like what my father does, but taken to another version. That yeah. was what I had in my little boy head. This right? kind of sounds like the story I was telling you earlier when I wanted to be a pilot because of right. all these same reasons because they looked like they had great lives, travel, beautiful yeah. homes, yeah. beautiful wives. Sign it's, me up for that. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, It was the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think when, when we're boys, uh, it uh, it shapes us a lot more than, uh, than we realize when we become men. In, in my case, it just stuck, right? And... I went forward with something where I didn't know where like my real passion was because a lot of those things you're thinking about, maybe there's not, not really hard values in them yet, right? It's just sort of ideas of how you want to live. So um, so I sort of fell into hospitality, and a lot of people fall into hospitality, as you know, for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Uh, 
I got lucky and that I fell into it uh, with with a a real business opportunity to bring uh, U.S. hospitality expertise to emerging markets that hadn't matured that much yet in terms of hospitality. But at this point, you weren't an expertise or an expert. No, but I had I had folks who were part of our company. Yeah. You know, this first sort of group of five or so that was around when when, when we all got started together uh, that were and they were they were all from the states. Okay. Okay. And, um, but, but to be frank, nobody really, uh, knew much about restaurants. Okay. And that turned out to be, uh, maybe a, a good thing and a bad thing. So we started building restaurants in our properties. Right. And so we started raising, I was the deal. I was the deal guy. I was going out and putting together deals, putting together financing, buying land, right. Uh, 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 hiring all the uh, uh, the local architects and sort of putting projects together, right? And then I had other guys who were like sector expert, experts in the different parts of our business, right? Um, and we were hiring great chefs, uh, people in new restaurant management, people in new restaurant marketing from all over the world to go to these properties. We, we ended up raising a lot of capital over time. and um, And yet we couldn't get the restaurant business figured out. That makes sense. We had a lot of <laughs> restaurants uh, that were uh, were uh, really bad businesses. They were sort of our lost leaders. Well, I mean, I feel like uh, that's kind of a, a common trait with hotel adjacent restaurants. Yes. Because the focus isn't the restaurant. The focus is the bigger picture. Right. And the restaurant tends to be an appendage of the hotel to like host events or to be a place for people to congregate when they're at the hotel. But the, the business of a restaurant is always never really at the forefront. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and we understood that the business of the restaurant was to help us to collect a lot of bodies, right, or to serve our other amenities. So we had big event centers in some places. We needed those restaurants for catering, right? Yeah. Uh, and obviously we had the hotels and so forth. The, um, but uh, regardless, it, it really um, – it, it it really hit me hard that I couldn't figure that business out, right? Because when we're young in particular and we think we can figure everything out yeah. <laughs> and then we start stumbling and we're figuring there's things that we just can't figure out, it sort of pissed me off. And um and I I was I was blessed uh to um actually be able to sort of totally manage my time because I had a teams of folks that were now working for me because we, we grew to from basically zero in revenue, about $200 million in revenue over, you know, seven years. Eight Wait, years. say that one more time. We went from about zero to 200 million in just the hotel revenue and all of our revenue combined. Okay. And yeah. all in hotels and restaurants, or hotels, everything? restaurants, Got bars, it. event centers, gaming, uh, golf, you know, yeah. <laughs> everything. Right. Okay. We went to, uh, uh, just under 5,000 people. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, what uh, uh, me having quite a bit of time on my hands and not really having been never, never having been brought up in the industry, uh, but because I lived all over the world loving food like crazy, right? Um, I started naively going around knocking on people's doors saying, you know, how's your business doing? And what, what have you learned? And cause I had friends in the restaurant industry, right? And I would go talk which to people. Which never happens. <laughs> which is like, like that naivety. was like almost like a blessing in disguise. It, it, it was, it was fortunate. That I was so, uh, uh, I knew nothing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, I knew I knew nothing. I could recognize that. Yeah. Right. And, um, 
and and people would would say, oh yeah, well you know you can fix this problem this way or you can fix that problem that way, and I'm like, okay, okay, great. How's your business doing? <laughs> And you know the you know the tale. I mean, I already know where this is going. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, people that I respected that seemed to have full restaurants, they weren't doing. Uh, uh, and people who had like big reputations, right? They weren't doing very well. And, and it's that, like you know the story of my life. Yeah, <laughs> well, to, yeah, yeah. It's it's hard. And so then I'm like, okay, hold on a second. I know that there are billion dollar restaurant companies, right? And I know that there are restaurateurs out there that have global names, right? And I'm thinking, here's this local guy that in, in this international market or in that international market, right? Because I was traveling all over the world, right? And I know I ended up meeting a lot of great people. And and why don't they have the results those other guys have? What is that gap, right? Yeah. And it was coming up with that that question. What do those leaders know, independent chain restaurant leaders, that the rest of us don't know. I want to know that. <laughs> yeah, that was the same exact question I was trying to answer because my parents, growing up in a restaurant, my parents right. line out the door every weekend. Uh, tons of local press. People would come from hours away just to, to try our restaurant. My parents struggled every month to pay the mortgage. Yeah. You know? And meanwhile, I'd look at other restaurants where the, the owners were hardly ever there. Right. And I'm like, okay, people love the shit out of us, but... What's the difference between being busy and being profitable was the kind of the question I was out to, to answer when I started this podcast. So you and I have a lot more commonalities. Oh, it's, it's- a- absolutely. And, and that question is, is essential. And so where my question was slightly different in my mind anyways was uh, what's the difference between being sort of an ordinary performing restaurant, and we can debate what that means exactly, but and being one that – went from an ordinary performing restaurant and got on a huge trajectory to become a globally renowned one. Yeah. Okay. And, and so it, it was the trajectory that I wanted to understand, you know, that actually was the bridge to getting from, you know, where people were to where everybody really, most people wanted to go. And, um, and again, I had people work for me and a lot of resources and, 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 uh, I'm not ADHD, but I have that sort of mind where I, I'm creative and I'm like moving back and forth with my brain yeah. on, on ideas, trying to connect knots. And, and so many of us, as you and I have spoken about already in, in the restaurant industry, don't have the time, actually. Uh, and so I, I was almost gifted with a special opportunity yeah. to just sit back and start gathering uh, uh, empiric, empirical evidence of what was really happening, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and that ended up being a 10 year process. So when you're in, when you first moved to Panama, uh, and you start this project to build out these hotels and these resorts, the golf courses, yeah, and yeah. the restaurants, what year is this? Okay. So, um, I was in Panama before that. Uh, but when, uh, uh, Thunderbird first became my client, it was, um, or 2022, so it was 1997, maybe. 1997. Yeah. Okay. I'm 53, folks. Okay. So 1997. <laughs> get that out there. But you also spent some time in Asia, because I know that you were well, building... Well, we, we, we built things all over the world. So what happened is we, we built some assets in Panama. So that's where it started. That's where it started, okay. And then we started making money, and we said, okay, where else can we go, right? We're, we're seeing the world of emerging markets, okay, and you know we're talking about Korea or Taiwan. We're talking about sub-Korea and sub-Taiwan. You know, in terms of socioeconomic development, right? Countries that 
we're fast growth, but but uh, we're coming out of sort of abject poverty to have, start to have a middle class. So this is interesting yeah. because again, like there's so many commonalities. But listening to your story, and I, and I say this, this happens. It's all relative, right? Yeah, of course. The same thing is happening in America in the Midwest. And like right. these fringe markets is what I call them. Right. If Chris Dimmick is listening to this right now, it's like, Eric, they're not fringe markets. They're momentum <laughs> markets. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> but that's the same thing that you were looking for, but on a whole different scale. You're, like you're looking for people coming out of second world to first world countries. Like, we, we were looking for what an urban, urban developer might think of as path of progress. So we yeah. want to be in those countries where right. we see that there's a middle class that is – just about to explode yeah and they don't have access to quality entertainment and hospitality products and we want to be there first right yeah these are all high-risk countries Mm -hmm. okay and but our thesis was but they're going to be de-risking as the middle class gets larger and larger right countries tend to de-risk because people are demanding uh, more uh, uh, better justice systems and better uh, economic opportunity and so forth uh, in larger and larger numbers, right? And uh, and so we, we started looking for those countries, right? Uh, and uh, I started with this group of, you know, basically five guys. There was a CEO, there was a CFO, there was a chief legal guy, and I was I was the transaction guy. I was basically the head of business development. My job was to go out actually find the deals and do the deals for a long time, right? And uh, and so I ended up going to before Chavez. If everybody anybody knows knows of Chavez and Venezuela, I went to Venezuela, Costa Rica, India, Philippines, Poland. Uh, we did a very small uh, project in Poland, uh, Peru, and I spent a lot of time in several other countries trying to put together deals that ultimately we couldn't pull off, right? Uh, and we started raising capital from family funds and high net worth individuals and uh, private equity funds all over the world to, and from local commercial banks to help raise all this capital, do all these projects. So what was it about these types of projects that was appealing for your investors? What was your sell? What was your, your pitch? Yeah, our sell was precisely what I just uh, uh, said. There's a burgeoning middle class yeah. with an increasing amount of disposable income for entertainment and for hospitality for the first time ever. Yeah. And they want stuff that they've never had before, right? And we want to put it in front of them. And the, the local guys still don't get these ideas of theming and high-level elevated design and really incredible uh, uh, sort of American-style efficient service and uh, and – and we want to bring all those things, and uh, as we do, and as we build uh, first mover brands in those those areas, we're going to have a lot of opportunity, right? Yeah. And um, was that the case? Did we, like, well, that that was that was that was the case. The the we we made some huge mistakes, and that is because we're in all these countries, we overpaid for our cost of capital, right? And so we got slowed down in a bunch of different ways because to go and finance deals in these countries, we are having to pay a lot of money to our investors to make these companies happen right uh and uh uh and so that was that was one and two is every deal that we did uh as far as i can remember there's probably one or two that weren't ended up being uh very profitable but they were still in high risk countries and so you would get regulators coming at you that were asking for stuff you couldn't give them right and you're having to like you know 
hide and seek with folks, right? Well, yeah, that's kind of like what <laughs> some of the things I was thinking. You have a lot of these countries that are emerging, but at the same time, there's probably a lot of corruption and a lot of you know family yeah, history you, and a lot we, of so people with their hands out. Is so where I'm going what with this. we ended up doing as a business model is we said we're going to go in each of these countries. And this is my job. And we're going to find the the wealthiest family we can that knows how Americans practice business that are multinational. Uh, business guys themselves who are sort of untouchable in those local markets that uh, they're not, nobody's going to ask them for stuff. So right? you would, so you would associate yourself so with we would go find, established. We would find some local uh, uh, corporation or family group and we would partner with them. We'd co-invest with them. Okay. So that would kind of put you under an umbrella of being a part of a local. Yes. We, any, anybody ever came and bothered us, we'd say, we don't know anything. Go go talk to our local partners. They manage all the local affairs, right? Okay. And they could manage those environments because they were, you know, they were more powerful than 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 the officials that would whatever bother you, right? Got you. So I'm kind of curious, um, for because I do think that there's a ton of opportunity for. I think a lot of people when they think I'm going to open my own restaurant, they think I need to do it in my own standalone brick and mortar. But there's a lot of opportunity in hotels in. Uh, adjacent restaurants to hotels. I think if you are wise enough to look and to find out where those opportunities are locally, that that could be a way for you to go in and, and develop a brand someplace if you're a new and developing yeah, chef. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there is a, a history of uh, uh, people not wanting to walk through a hotel lobby to get to a restaurant. Yeah. There's some sort of psychological barrier that exists in not all cases, but in many cases. Uh, and so, uh, wasn't there somebody who figured out the, the put the, like a separate entrance to the restaurant? Well, that's what, that's what, that's what you do is you, yeah. you basically insist if you're going to be an independent restaurateur in a restaurant facility, you want a door to the parking lot. Make sure before you move into the space that there's yeah, a deal the, negotiated. The door to the parking lot, your own unique visibility. Uh, those are, those are really important and you want a hotel that actually can create, uh, uh, enough traffic that they're going to pay for the lease just from their uh, from their own uh, guests. So that's kind of where I'm going with this. So key elements: if you are looking at a hotel space, make sure there's an entrance to the, the parking spot. from the parking parking spot to the restaurant and from the lobby. Make sure that the business from the restaurant alone can sustain uh, your, cover your expenses. Yeah, your rent, your rent, and what else? Just just your rent. So not uh, your cost of goods. Yeah. Sold. So so the the other issue is that. Um, Let's talk about buffets for a moment, okay? The the wonderful thing about buffets is there's something in a, in a, for everybody in a buffet, right? And it's rarely an exceptional meal, right? Because you have to please everybody, okay? And the problem with hotel restaurants that are typically hotel restaurants is they're sort of like a buffet. They have to be pl- relatively pleasing to all taste buds, right? So it's rare to find like an Indian restaurant in an American hotel, right? Yeah. Um, so... Uh, you generally don't want to be that restaurant, okay? You'd rather the hotel operate their own lost leader, serve all sorts of, okay, uh, 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 tastes to all sorts of uh, of guests. Uh, but you, you want to be that next restaurant that can be a sort of especially interesting restaurant, maybe with some entertainment or or just some t- typical, uh, uh, atypical flair, right, to it that, um, that both outsiders – would aspire to and hotel guests that want to try something special. Got it. Uh, so at what point, uh, or I know that you opened the restaurant in Panama. You went back to Panama. You opened a restaurant. You put yeah. it on the map. 
uh, was there a swing happening towards your focus from being more big picture, big biz dev, uh, going to these countries and creating opportunity or yeah. you know, to, to swing full focus on restaurants? When did that start to happen? Uh, it was all about Noma. Okay. okay. 2010. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, faced with all these restaurants we have in our public trade company that are not making money. Okay. And I'm now trying to figure stuff out. Right? Okay. Now's a great time yeah. to take our first break to thank our sponsors. And I think this is a good time to break, right? Because I think we're going to get some, We're going to get into the stuff. Yeah. Okay. We'll be right <laughs> back. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food costs in real time. The beauty of Margin Edge is that the information is immediately available. You take a picture and boom, you have access to it just in time. And everything that Margin Edge does is aimed at making your restaurant more efficient. So what exactly do you get with Margin Edge? With Margin Edge, you get automatic invoice processing. You can do this by either taking photos with their app, scanning slash emailing files or integrating it with a electronic data interchange. You can get daily controllable P&L, including labor data. You can get recipe costing and menu analysis tools, not to mention you also get inventory management and actual versus theoretical usage reports. Margin Edge gives you the prime cost daily, so there are no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets real-time data to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends. With supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge will cover your onboarding. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. Okay, we're back. And um, before you get into um, your, you know, you discover Noma, uh, paint the picture of where you are. What's your life look like at this point? Okay, so the the day that I started to be aware of Noma, I was living in the Philippines. So this is 2010. Got it. Okay. And... We had just opened up uh, our second property there, which was a, a championship golf course. We opened the first nine holes. Uh, we opened up uh, an incredible cliffside hotel. We had a whole peninsula that basically we had acquired under long-term lease from the government. And, um, uh, and we'd already had one property open that was on somebody else's golf course. It was absolutely stunning. And uh, and I'm in my research mode. I'm, I, I'm realizing that uh, when I ask a question to my team of experts who work for us, you know, people who've been in the restaurant business a long time, I was getting 100 different answers to the same question. When I'd ask that question to my, uh, my restaurant friends, I was getting 100 different answers to the same question, right? And, and, I'm, and I'm like, okay, there has to be some, some more universal uh, uh, ideas that underpin you know what's happened what's the difference between you know most folks and our leading restaurant owners but the folks in my circles don't know what those are yeah so you get into a lot of these truths i i I do but and so i decided i'm gonna start researching okay okay and i'm giving up on researching with 
people that understood the restaurant business the way that most of us understand the restaurant business, you are know, you, are you kicking yourself for not starting a podcast in 2010? And I should have done that. I should have done that. And, uh, yeah, nobody's been as early as you, my friend. Uh, the, um, and Noma had just for the first time been recognized, uh, as the world's, uh, best restaurants, the first of its fourth time, four times. Right. And, um, and I say, you know what, I, I want to figure out first what, what made Noma so special? What positioned it to go from a restaurant that I think started in 2004 to being the world's best restaurant in six years? Okay. How does that happen? It's, it's a 40-seat restaurant. How does that happen? Right? right. And, uh, and I'm like, I'm going to spend a couple hours on this. I'm going to figure this all out. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and, and that uh, – Ten that years was, later. <laughs> yeah. That was me sitting in, in my, my office – with you know, um, we had a thousand, almost a thousand five hundred employees in the Philippines. I had an office of fifty people outside my door, and I'm sitting in my office every day looking at Noma, right, trying to figure out what's going on. So, you said up to this point, at this point, you still haven't quite. At this point, you haven't cracked the Noma code. You're still no. curious about what that is, but you did ask a lot of questions, and you got a lot of varying answers that you know today aren't the right answers. What are a lot of those? answers you got that you can debunk is not necessarily truth. yeah so uh there are uh uh three levels more or less of knowledge okay and uh for those who are listening that are that are restaurant owners for example right if you are asking yourself a question about how something works and the answer you are giving yourself or that everybody in your team is giving you are tactical answers, right? Which is basically a tactic is something that really has just one action step to it, right? Um, it's not universal. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and unfortunately, in the restaurant industry, many people don't get beyond tactical answers. Now, there's a layer two, which is strategic. Okay. I, I want to be able to bring in more people into my restaurant, right? What is the strategy that I would use, right? And so let me get, let me give you an example of the tactic first. Yeah, so, 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 so we can like tight, tighten this one. up, yeah. right? So a tactic might be um, I want my sign to stand out, so I'm going to put up high on a pole. Okay. Create a pole sign, right? That's a get tactic. Get into the, the just position. Yes, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And, and so – well, we're gonna. That's a great point. We yeah. we should go there. So then, the sh- the strategy uh, around that could be, um, oh, actually, uh, if I really want this sign to uh, stand out, I need to add some other features to it, right? So I want to put lighting on it, and I want to make sure that uh, uh, it's got a blue sky behind it, and there's not a lot of other things that are sort of distracting. And I want to make it rotate so that people see the movement. And I'm sort of devising a whole strategy around that sign, right? To create visibility, okay? But there's another layer. <laughs> this is probably why there's zoning codes today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, because everybody will do the same exactly, thing, yeah. right? So, um, the, so if you are getting a strategic answer from somebody – and you're saying, how do I actually get more people into my restaurant? And their idea coming back to you is put a pole sign, light it, 
make it rotate, put bright colors on it, make sure it sits against a, a blue sky so everybody sees it, right? You'll get more people. Okay, yeah. Not universal, obviously, mm-hmm. because if you are the French Laundry, that's not going to do you any good. You're in the you know the middle of Napa Valley. It's not like you got a hundred thousand cars going by on a highway next to the French Laundry, right? So, absolutely not a universal strategy, and there and doing a pole size not a universal tactic, right? Uh, so we all have to understand that there are first principles that are below every single tactic that has worked sometimes and every single strategy that has worked sometimes. And so um, I was only getting strategic answers and tactical answers that worked in some situations yes. and not in other situations. I can totally, like, I, because we went through, like, the, yeah, absolutely. Like, there's just so many different things that are that are case-by-case case scenario. Yeah. What works for one person might not work for you. And I think that it's really important that we understand that, it, like you said, that that's a tactic for that individual right. in that individual situ- situation or that specific situation that it made it work, right? Absolutely. And so the, the flip side of that is uh, I'm just going to bring back to a current example of, of how we get pushed things, right? There's all sorts of people that are trying to sell stuff to us that come at us on social media and so forth, and and they're pushing hard on their tactics and their strategies, but they don't work for most people for hundreds of reasons. Maybe uh, they don't work for the restaurant business, or maybe they don't work for your personality, or maybe they don't work for the skill set that you have or your type of restaurant. And so you're sort of setting yourself up for failure, right, because you're shooting in the dark – you don't know where the dartboard is exactly. You're just throwing darts when you're reliant only on tactics and strategies to try to stitch together a long-term trajectory in which you can have minimal amounts of hard failure and you need lots of successes to go really far. Yeah. Right? You can't stitch together the sort of trajectory our leaders have shooting in the dark on tactics and strategies because – uh, it will take you too long to figure everything out, shoot, shooting in the dark like that, to actually get as far as you want to get go. lost in the minutiae, trying to figure all that stuff out, you overcomplicate. You absolutely get yeah. lost in minutiae. So a first principle, and let's just take uh, the world that we all know, a, one first pr- principle of, uh, of how the world works is we have gravity, yeah. right? Yeah. And when you hold up an apple or a glass or anything else, it is going to fall to the ground, right? It's universal. Yes. Okay. And, uh, and what I believe uh, that our restaurant leaders have uncovered, whether they have thought about it in this way or not, but because they are universally practicing in the same ways, and we'll get into that, is they have uncovered the first principles of how restaurants actually bridge that gap from ordinary performance to extraordinary performance. And they are all using these same first principles, whether McDonald's or Noma, to elevate themselves up, right? And so let's go back to the pull sign, right? We talked about the tactic. We talked about the strategy. And I'm saying, Eric, under every tactic that's ever worked sometimes and under every strategy that's ever worked sometimes, there's a universal principle that works every time. Yeah. Did you give us an example of a strategy? The tactic was the sign being loud and obnoxious. No, the tactic was... Uh, I'm going to create a sign to create visibility. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and the strategy would be okay. 
I'm going to do a multiple thing. So strategy is basically a series of tactics yeah. put together, right? Tactic is one thing, okay? And a strategy is I'm going to build a domino uh, uh, or a chain of, of tactics. And in this case, it was I'm going to rotate it. I'm going to light it. Yeah, I'm going to make yeah. it uh, uh, great colors. I'm going to position my property in such an extent that it has the maximum uh, blue sky background so that people see it against the blue sky. Yeah, right? but there's a third category we really haven't gotten into yet. Which are the first principles. Yes. Okay. And so what I'm saying is, folks, under every single strategy and tactic that's worked sometimes, there's a universal first principle of restaurants that works every time. Okay. Yeah. And that's what you need to understand what those first principles are so that you can apply them as lenses to bring your business to a higher trajectory, right? More consistently with fewer errors and higher probabilities of sort of hitting the sweet spot every time, okay? So what would be a first principle under that tactic or that strategy that we just discussed, right? And that is that when you are more visible, right, people recall you more often, okay? And when they recall you more often, you increase your revenue proportionally to others that don't ha don't generate that sort of recall, right? So, in other words, there's a direct line between your visibility in general and the amount of traffic and revenue you generate, okay? And now you can say, how do I take that lens and apply it to all aspects of my business? Because it applies everywhere. And, and you can say, well, I, I'm going to make my facade stand out more, right? And I'm going to uh, put a Chick-fil-A style billboard uh, near the off-ramp of the highway. That's visibility. I'm going to figure out how I can become a thought leader so that people like Eric want to talk to me, right? Yeah. And that creates my visibility uh, for my own personal brand. But behind that is my restaurant brand. Or I'm going to publish a book like I did, right? Yeah. And uh, And... I'm going to sit, try to sit on the, my city council, and I'm going to try to do all these things that get involved in my community. Get, yeah, that maximize. Donate. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Everything that I can do to maximize the visibility of my brand and myself, okay, is going to increase the recall for my brand in the market, and is going to lead to more traffic and revenue compared to those that are not as visible as I am. And this is the same, this is a universal truth because you see the same strategy on social media when it comes, all you're trying to do is get impressions. All you're trying to do is remind people that you exist. Right. And you're, and then if once they see that you exist, there's the offer, right? right? To get you to come to, t to call whatever, the whatever the hook is. So right. it's the, all the same stuff. It's all about just how many impressions you make. But you and you get into it in the book, but then there's certain people who are just really good at getting a lot of attention, and that that attention they get, the reason why they get to those stratospheric levels of growth is because they're everybody wants to be they're just so front of mind. Well, yeah. So the book tells you how to get that attention, yeah. right? And we, we can go in that in a moment. But what I want to do is uh, for a second is step back and show how universal that just that one principle we discussed is, right? Yeah. So I. I told you out front, oh, uh, I looked at McDonald's to Noma to see what universally connected them. Yeah. And I remember the first time I said that out loud to somebody. And this guy ran a small restaurant, and he laughed his ass off at me. Right? It's like, there's nothing in common. You're, you're just, you're an idiot, basically. Right? Uh, and I'm like, well, I'm not certain if I'm an idiot or not an idiot. Okay, well, this is it, there's nothing in common? Do you know of Noma? Do you know of McDonald's? Then they have something in common. Well, yeah, exactly. And so uh, uh, if we think about visibility, 
right, as our, as our first principle, McDonald's creates visibility in many different ways, right, that are different strategies and tactics, excuse me, than the way Noma creates visibility, right? They have different strategies and tactics, but they are still trying to maximize their visibility in their own ways, right? And we can talk all we want about this, those strategies and tactics of one versus the other, right? Yeah, and, and I feel like people that are listening to this right now are saying, these freaking a-holes are just telling us the secret to becoming rich in the restaurant industry is get famous, which is a lot easier said than done. But you do get into specific tactics on how... Absolutely. Depending on it, whether you want to be a McDonald's or a Noma, um, there's ways to do that. Yeah. So I, I guess the important thing for uh, the audience is I wrote this book not just to tell everybody, okay, that there are all these principles uh, uh, of how to actually bridge your knowledge gap from, you know, that creates ordinary outcomes to, to the sort of outcomes our leaders get. Uh, but actually, there, there's how our leaders did each of these things are in the book. Yeah. Right? And, and, that, and that, for me, ended up being the bigger jumps because I could start to easily see the, the, the universal approaches to fulfilling these, uh, uh, these outcomes, right? Yeah, and we haven't said it yet, and I, and I know where you're heading with this because I did read the book recently on my yeah. flight down here, um, <laughs> that, that even McDonald's and Noma, what they share in common that we haven't said the words is they broke cultural truths. Right. So what is a cultural truth? Yeah. So uh, let's take a step back for a second, and, okay. let, and let's talk about something more biological than okay. that. Okay. Well, now Just, you're getting into the kind of stuff I like. Yeah, yeah. And this is the stuff I like, too. Okay. Um, everybody who is listening to this, right, had ancestors, yeah. right? Whether we knew our ancestors or not, we have thousands of years of ancestors, right, uh, uh, all of us. And uh, at some point, uh, those ancestors were hunters and gatherers, right? They were very primitive in their behaviors, right? And our biology uh, hasn't changed much since then, right? And uh, and how did they survive, okay? Well, they survived by using their the energy in their brain in ways that allowed them to survive, okay, just as we do today. And so what, what, what would that mean in, in practical purposes for them? It would mean that I am walking uh, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, in some sort of open field of grass, right, and I can't have my brain wasting its time seeing every blade of grass, right? So we allow our brains to, over time, recognize the patterns in our world and then our brain doesn't actually have to expend any energy when it sees them this okay? is all like this sorry keep going keep going yeah and uh and so i want you to think for a moment about the blades of grass uh as for example being strip malls today okay when we drive by strip malls today right or we drive by 20 pole signs in a row we no longer see those, okay, because our brain doesn't want to expend energy on them because they don't represent a, a threat, a, a threat or, or, or necessarily an opportunity, yeah. right, okay? And at the same time, those ancestors of ours, if they saw some striped animal moving between the grass, right, which could have been a tiger, they would see that change in the pattern, Right. 
and that would alert them to opportunity if it was something to eat or alert, alert them to a, th- a threat, right? Yeah. And so biologically, we are trained to pretty much only see opportunities and threats, right? Um, you're walking down the street, whether you're a, a man or a woman, and there's somebody who is beautiful walking by versus an or- ordinary-looking guy like me. Your your eyes are going to turn and look at somebody who might look extraordinary, right? Yeah. And you might not look at the next 100 people, right? And so we're looking at opportunities and threats because our brains make us do that, okay? And uh, and those opportunities and threats are always breaks to the pattern, Yeah. okay? And so one thing we all need to understand is when you go back to that pole sign as one example, you're doing everything you can to break the patterns of the view lines, right, in order so, for the people – so, so that people will see it, right? Yeah, and see you. And, see, and therefore Which see ironically, you. and this is all the dots, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs of right. needing to be seen. And right. like exactly. these ideas of cultural norms, uh, these patterns is why we, I think, I think you could even tie this to Dunbar's number with being in, in groups of 150 yeah. in tribal because beyond that, the patterns, the beliefs started to break up and it was, and it was dangerous because you believe different things than we believe. And right. now you're a threat. Right. And that's why culture is so important because it lets us grow beyond 150. Right. So we can share the same patterns right. and beliefs and religions, which is why religion was so important for our evolution to common day. Absolutely. So I'm going to come to cultural truths in just a moment. So when you see, uh, um, uh, McDonald's launching a new product that has a crazy new name to it, right? Uh, and uh, and they're creating a Happy Meal when they create a Happy Meal and they're putting a, a, like a unique toy in that Happy Meal and they're doing everything they can to break the patterns of what their competitors are doing. That is like their number one focus is how do I break the patterns of what all my competitors are doing? And they're all trying to do the same thing. They're all out there looking to break the patterns. Call us a unique selling proposition. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right, that's a, a way to do it. But but for that's a way to, to say it. But but for our own biology, uh, to take away the business terminology, we're just trying to like break the patterns that everybody else and our people fall in, our, 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 that we ourselves fall into. So what does that have to do with cultural truths? Okay. Yeah. So patterns are tend to be physical things. I just real quick want to reinforce yeah. what you're saying because you see this with Zig Ziglar and you know Z, um, Zig. I think it was Zig Ziglar that said Zig when everyone else zags, or is that somebody else? I don't remember. Um, and then you have you know, uh, uh, the Purple Cow by right. Seth Godin. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah beautiful. These, these are these are reinforcing what you're trying to say. Like, Absolutely right. And so in in, in 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 this particular case, what I'm telling you as the audience is. Don't just understand that it's the path less traveled or don't just understand that you're trying to like step on a new ground. But take for what I'm saying for as a how-to. If you can actually sit down and look at the – because we're not the cultural truths yet – to the patterns of your products versus the patterns that you share with competitors of yours and you can do the opposite – essentially, right, then uh, you can actually find a way to break that pattern and be more visible, right, sticking on that one first principle. So, you know, one example that uh, I, 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 uh, I would use is um, Papa John's and Papa Diaz, mm-hmm. okay? Papa John's went and looked at its day part business, right? And they said, well, we can serve 
uh, we want to increase that that part of our business. People don't eat a lot of pizzas in the day part business. They want handheld stuff, right? And uh, uh, pizza restaurants serve calzones, okay? Oh, you, you, now you're talking here. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know. I'm, I'm getting close <laughs> to your heart, okay? But they said that's a pattern, so we can't serve calzones, right? And uh, and then uh, they said, well, people in our price point and our geographies tend to be Subway-style shops, and they're serving subs, Subway sandwiches, so we can't serve Subway sandwiches either. So those are the patterns. How do we do something that is near opposite to that as possible, right? Because that idea Breaks. of looking for the opposite or the near opposite is what helps you stand out. Yeah, it's not a little iterative change. It's a it's a jump, yeah. right? And too many restaurateurs get caught up in making these little iterative changes and, and say, I create this little twist or this little take. But it's, folks... If you think back to when you've done that, it was rarely enough to change your business outcomes, right? Yeah. So Papa John's thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, and they said, well, what we can do is we can create something which uh, folds over with pizza bread like calzones, right? Make it thinner, not as doughy, uh, and we're, but we're going to fill it with sandwich-style content, so like a, a, a meatball sandwich or a buffalo chicken sandwich, but in a folded-over pizza bread, Right. And uh, so calzones normally are basically versions of pizza yeah. <laughs> folded over. In this case, they're versions of subs folded over uh, uh, as calzones, yeah. right? And a little, a little thinner, a little uh, more sandwich-like. And they call those papadillas. And that pattern break of we're not actually serving a sub or a calzone. We're serving something that's actually unique. A new invention that nobody else is doing. Yeah, nobody else is doing it, right? Yeah. And that lifted papa john's day uh day part business a lot okay yeah. uh and sort of became their profit leader uh coming out of that particular uh first year so that's the sort of work we're trying to do is find the opposites okay so now eric brought up this question what is a cultural truth right yeah. and and what i said was patterns uh, uh and pattern breaks for the most part in a business are physical things mm-hmm. right um Cultural truths are ideas, okay? And, uh, and I'm just going to uh, say something stupid as an idea, okay? One cultural truth is that uh, we should bring, drink coffee out of a mug, okay? Another cultural truth is that we should eat with forks and knives and spoons, right? Yeah. Another cultural truth is that uh, we should put a host, if we have fine dining, at uh, a host station at, at the front door, right? Yeah. Everything that we see... Everything that we, everything that Eric and I are looking at right now, okay, all these objects that are around us are are made up of human beliefs that we've created, right? Because it's what we, it's what we've always known. It's our. It becomes what we know part and, of our culture, and, right? And it becomes part of our our culture, right? And so, because we are not adept as humans at seeing the way that we do things are actually just belief systems that we made up as humans to create some order in this chaotic world, Yeah. right? Um, we have trouble seeing that actually every one of them can be broken by trying to do the opposite of yeah. that idea. Yeah, and you're reminding me right now of Danny Meyer's words in the book, Setting uh, the Table. Uh, 
he says, who says you can't do this? Right. Who says you can't do that? Right. We just kind of come up in this world where we're just so used to social norms that we think that if we break a social norm, it's going to be a disaster. But in reality, it's going to set us up. It's going to make us stand out. Right. And you saw, like you use, uh, I think, in the book, the example with Chipotle and how the cultural norm was to get fast food as cheaply as possible. Right. Uh, but what ended up happening is that we got really unhealthy food as a result of that. And their cultural uh, truth or the, the cultural truth that they broke was that it doesn't have to be fast and unhealthy. It can be fast and as it can and it can be healthy. Yeah. And that's the, how they broke the norm and stood out. Absolutely. So uh, what Eric is referring to is the cultural truth and what is called an a priori truth. And an a priori truth is a truth that you believe should be true that you now have to go out in the world and prove, okay? It's not a truth for everybody yet. It's a truth that you are have a conviction that you want to prove that it should be the truth, right? And so Steve Ells, founder of Chipotle, said, oh, uh, fast food, for food served quickly, can use real ingredients, not manufactured, processed, factory-made ingredients, right? Juxtaposition, by the way, right? That language. And so we're going to use real ingredients in fast food, and we're going to show people where those ingredients come from, and we're going to put them out in front of you so you can see that they're fresh, right? And they're not going to be cooked on a grill that's hidden in back where you saw somebody pull up a frozen patty, right? We're going to put everything right in front of you, and we're going to tell you where we sourced it, and we're going to bring that into fast food. And this is an a prior truth because nobody else is doing it. So we are going to prove this one store Chipotle to the world. Obviously, this was a process over time. He didn't have all these ideas from that first day, right? But he started to learn what he had, right? We're going to prove to the world my new truth, my a priori truth, that yes, food can be served quickly and used Real ingredients, yeah. right? Yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, and I was just going to say, and but every restaurant has an opportunity to do the same thing, right? And so along Trump's Sweet Green, right, just went public, and uh, and they said, oh, fast casual, because now there's a thing called fast casual thanks to Chipotle, right? Fast casual doesn't just have to be about the cultural truth that it's serving real ingredients because Chipotle is really about serving real ingredients, right? Not about nutrition and health. And, uh, and Sweet Green said, actually, fast casual can be about nutrition and health, and we're going to prove that new truth, right? And so for you guys sitting in your offices and at home and in your car <laughs> listening to Eric and I gab away, what I wanted to say to you is if you can see a cultural truth of which there are a thousand cultural truths you're practicing in your restaurant right now and you can say identify it so clearly that you can write it out in a sentence or a phrase you can come up with an a priori truth from that written down sentence or phrase that can somehow put a dent in the universe right yeah and that is what every single one of our leaders every single one of our leaders has done, they have changed the cultural truths, the belief systems we had inherently in the restaurant business, and they planted something that was not inherent to our beliefs just by doing as near opposite as they possibly could. Yep. 
Yeah. I, I yeah. There's so much. I mean, this is just one of the like. I feel like we're covering like one chapter of the book right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's a, another thing I really want to get in. And unless there's anything you want to, you want to round that thought off before we move forward. Uh, no, maybe we'll come back to it if it makes sense. But yeah, let's. So one let's go on. one thing that I found super powerful was this idea of the law of diminishing returns. Yeah. Um, that and you see this. So a lot of what your book did for me because I'm right there with you, where I'm out there literally talking to hundreds of restaurateurs. If you don't yeah. believe me, there's a list of them yeah. below this episode. <laughs> um, and like you, you help. Like there's. So one of the things that reinforce I always hear in the show is that you have to refresh in every five years. You should have a budget put away to refresh in every five years. Yeah. And the reason for that is because you have to stay relevant. You have to stay fresh. You have to you have to change it up because people right. will get bored of you. Right. Right. So that's in essence a really short version of the, the law of diminishing returns. But maybe you can explain it better. Yeah. So you can explain it. Better. Well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> the uh, um uh. Uh, you explained it great, but I, I had to I had to figure this out like in the minutia, right, to really understand what the concept. Well, I knew was. why we had to like every five years refreshing this because we need to we need to stay relevant because people are gonna get right. we're gonna get stale, right? So, but you take it further, yeah. So let, let let me take it. Let me take us to the prequel, and then we'll get to the sequel of that. Okay, the prequel is the day that you opened your restaurant. Okay, for those that are listening, you know whatever restaurant they opened, whether it's the first one or the tenth one. You went from zero revenue and you started on a fast curve up, right? Yeah. And uh, and that curve, let's just call it your revenue growth rate, right? And so your growth rate might have grown, you know, let's take month one as your first as your baseline, whatever that was, right? Maybe it was ten dollars, let's just say. And by uh, you know month twelve, you're doing a hundred dollars a month, right? So you ten x. You know, from month one, your 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 revenue by month twelve, that is a super fast yeah. revenue growth rate as a percentage basis, yeah. right? Okay. And I know there's so many people who are listening to us, like, yeah, that's me. That's me. Whenever we get to that point, we're like, we figured it out. We're unstoppable. We're like, oh my god, <laughs> I I know that I, I'm good, right? Yeah. That's that's the way we all feel. Four okay? years later, <laughs> four years later, in some cases, one year later, yeah. in some cases, six years later. But yes, what happens is. We have these diminishing returns, obviously, where the longer we've been open, the slower uh, that growth rate gets until uh, we s- start to go down very quickly the top of that bell curve. And over time, almost everybody heads back to r- more or less the growth rate of the market. And we become dependent on what's happening in the economic cycles. Okay? And then we live out the rest of that restaurant's life more or less in that we might be refreshing every five years we might be adding something once in a while extending the bar or adding a bar or whatever and then we'll get a little another growth curve right um but essentially we are all buying into this fact that pretty much eventually we're growing more or less what the market grows at right yeah and uh and that is the law of diminishing returns that you know the longer we're open uh, the 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 slower our growth rate is going to be, and there are lots of underlying factors uh, to that that we can get into. Okay, but what I want everybody to understand is that our restaurant leaders broke the law of diminishing returns. Yes, they kicked its butt. Okay, because and they 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 actually didn't uh, uh, overcome the law. They had adjusted to its realities okay 
And so nobody can escape the law of diminishing returns. It's a law. It's a law. Right. (laughs) If you open up, exactly right. (laughs) It's a law. If you open up a McDonald's today, you're going to go through that bell curve, right? But when they recognize front and center that bell curve is going to happen, right, they say, well, what do we have to do to not uh, keep that growth going forever off that first curve, but how do we create many successive growth curves on that same storefront, okay? So if you don't believe that this is a big deal, think that, you know, uh, before the crisis, you know, about the five-year period before the the COVID crisis, um, Domino's, 60 years after opening almost, had hit a couple years of 9% same-store growth, okay? How do you do that when you've been open for over 50 years, Constantly evolution, constantly evolving, constantly, constantly evolving. But what what are you really doing? You are constantly innovating to such an extent that you can create a new growth curve on top, a new bell curve. At as the first one is ending, you're adding a second one on top of yeah. it. As that one's ending, you're innovating again, adding a second one, a third one yeah. on top of that, and you are going and going and going and going. So when they were nine percent, the market was growing at like two percent, mm-hmm. right? They were over four times greater in speed than the market, though they've been open for five decades, right? So- you see this in other places too. You see it with a, a linear restaurant group does it with their restaurant next. Yeah. So they understood the law of diminishing returns and they said, well, let's just reinvent a restaurant every year or whatever right. it is. Right. And that's exactly what they're doing. They know that they're, they figured out that we're the hottest Absolutely. in our first year. Right. So let's, you know, the first, every two years, I can't remember how often they switch, they rebrand, yeah. but they literally tear down and rebuild a whole new concept because they know they're, can ride in that 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 wave of the first year they they're oh we're starting to see downtick re reinvent you see it with taco bell you use that in the example they have a freaking chicken sandwich chicken taco that's the the bread is the chicken they have a dorito taco like yeah. they're just doing the craziest shit they can think of to bring breaks. you in right exactly right and so what um uh the way that they all think the leaders all think that most people don't think is um, when I open my restaurant, I created some novelty in the market because I put in a new business, right? Yeah. That's what happened to most of us. And we were novel and people drove by and they said, oh, look, this place just opened. Cool. Let's go try that out. And people got it. There's some buzz and people talked about it, right? And, uh, and they are trying to create just as much buzz with every single innovation they do, okay? And most of us, what we do is we come up with a new menu item, we slap it on the back of our menu or you know wherever in our menu, and we don't do it in such a way that it breaks patterns, okay? Or if we do break some patterns, we don't let the world know about the pattern break, right? Uh, which is a, a, a form of launching products, okay? And so people don't see the pattern break, right? And they don't talk about it, it doesn't create any buzz. And so uh, they are bringing a series of approaches together to innovate something that breaks a pattern so strongly, and then they are communicating it in ways that are often pattern-breaking in their communications, and we can talk about some examples so strongly, that the world around them sees them again as if they had just opened. Yeah, and I think we started this section of the conversation uh, after the commercial break you said Noma is the reason why I went down this path. Right. And I think they're another great example of this. Right. So you want to share that? Yeah. So um, Noma 
if you look at Noma uh, 2.0, and of course this has been a little bit of a shaky thing because of COVID got in the way, right? Yeah. But I, I want everybody to uh, understand that what Rene Redzepi does is exactly what Taco Bell does. Yeah. Okay. What? No way. Get out of here. Yeah, I know. I there's nothing. Just, there's there's no similarity. Don't hang up, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so Taco Bell does approximately nine uh, um, uh, limited time product offers a year in which they invent some crazy name, okay, for a product. They put together some crazy ingredients. They use some really original marketing to get it out there so we see it. They're pattern breaking in their marketing, right? Everything's pattern break, pattern break, pattern, pattern break so that we constantly see them and we want to go try them out, right? And, uh, and Noma does exactly the same thing. They just do it at a slightly slower play, pace. So they do three new season launches a year. Yep. These are essentially limited time offers in which they're bringing in crazy new ingredients, <laughs> right? Creating crazy uh, uh, photogenic plating, right? And, uh, and we are moving their images all over the world with social media because of the pattern breaks in that plating and the pattern breaks in that description of that product, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and they are attracting our attention as a result. And all they are doing is, as Noma 1.0 had sort of now four times won the world's best restaurant in the world, they're thinking we're at the top of the bell curve. Yeah. We really can't go any farther than this, right? Uh, let's shut down. Let's pattern break by taking the restaurant around the globe. Yep. That was a pattern break, yep. right? And and when we reopen, let's reconceptualize this restaurant uh, and reconceptualize how it launches seasonal products because yeah. they weren't seasonal before that. We didn't even mention their original pattern break. Yeah. Which their right. their original pattern break was they wanted to do they wanted to represent was it Nova Scotian? Uh no, or Scandinavian. No, Scandinavian thank right, you. right. They wanted to uh they wanted to redefine what Scandinavian food was because traditionally it had kind of a reputation for being blah. Yeah. And they wanted to change that. So right. they that was the first pattern break. Well, uh, yeah, so historically uh uh, you know, buffets, by the way, folks, uh, were not invented in Las Vegas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> buffets were essentially uh, uh, an adaption of smorgasbords out of Scandinavia uh, that were actually not buffets at the time. They only became buffets when they brought smorgasbords to the World Fair in New York City in, I don't remember what year, but many decades ago. Okay. And they sort of reconceptualized smorgasbords as some sort of large, uh, abundant buffet, right? And so what happened is tourists started to go to Scandinavia, and they had this idea of smorgasbords, and restaurants started to serve them something that wasn't really even native to Scandinavia, which were these huge buffets of food, of which, since they didn't have a lot of native ingredients, they were importing most ingredients from continental Europe, right? That was the pattern. The pattern was... When people come, we're going to serve them large, abundant food with ingredients that aren't even our own, right? Because that's what people want. And uh, and Rene Redzepi and Kyle Meyer, who's his partner, and other great Scandinavian restaurateurs and chefs got together, and they said, no, we're going to create a new way of thinking that is we're only going to use ingredients from our lands, our skies, and our seas, right? And uh, Which wasn't necessarily a pattern break universally but it was in that market well it, so why was it a pattern break in that market and 
why in part was it a universal? You're totally right because there's farm to table going on already, yeah. right? But um, nobody had done it in a place with such scarcity before. Yeah. Okay, and and so they had to use a scarcity of ingredients that forced them to become incredibly creative and diligent in figuring out how to use these ingredients because a lot of them weren't edible in their their normal states or through sort of simple cooking techniques, right? And uh, and so the pattern break was we're using ingredients that have never actually been used and farmed to table before any place in the world that are really native to us, and we're having to be so creative that we're actually creating an entirely new uh, way of thinking about food, yeah. right? And uh, and so their plates all became pattern breaks as a result. Mm. Okay, um, and and that's the point is they looked at the pattern. Okay, of Rene Rizepi looked at the pattern of smorgasbords and he's talked about smorgasbords in the past and how they were a joke. Yeah, right. And he said, "What what is the opposite?" He yeah. and others said, "What is the opposite of this?" Right. That's the a priori truth that we're going to lean into. Right. And that's what they did. Yeah. And the reason why I really really enjoy your book. Um, is because I've been saying that the, we're going to find out more about what will make us successful in the future. About We're going to learn more about what will make us successful in the future by looking to our pasts right. and understanding how we got to where we are. Absolutely. Not necessarily like history, but like evolutionarily, like why we are the way we are, anthropological, yeah. what's happening in our brain. Yeah. And yeah, like all this stuff is reinforcing. We are a certain way, and I don't know if these people are doing it intentionally, but like, like, like we as humans, like we we know that we're not in the the, the, the business of food. We're in the business of creating experiences, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't even we're not even conscious of the experiences we're having. But when you can subconsciously influence people and break the habits, and they don't even know why they love you so much, but it's just like you're literally just you're making it like these un unconscious experiences which is weird to kind of yeah say like because like you so, think of an experience i, you think I hate like, that I'm i hate totally that. conscious of i this. hate that word what experience okay, okay. so let, let's dig into that let's challenge each other a little bit um i think that's one of the most dangerous words in our business why is that okay so it's sort of like the word service right i provide great service or i show my love to customers what does that really mean right that that means uh, uh, something different in every single restaurant based on the tactics and strategies that a restaurant. So the word service is sort of an a- empty word uh, because it can mean many different things, right? And um, and and I, and I, where I want everybody to feel challenged a moment is, uh, uh, and we'll get to experience in a moment, is how do you define the word restaurant, right? And uh, and when you ask most people, when you do a dictionary check, right, uh, what it all says is it's it's a place where people can come in, sit down, and order food and drink and consume it on premise, right? Now, of course, there's some adjuncts to that today with delivery and so forth, but essentially that's the traditional look, right? Um, but that definition is sort of like saying uh, a car is a, is a a, a, a vehicle that has four tires and takes us from point A to point B, right? When we know that we buy cars for status symbols, we mm-hmm. want social currency of having a Mercedes or a Lexus or whatever you know brand that you aspire to, right? 
and uh, we we buy cars because uh, we have kids and we want that third row of seats because we want to be able to fold down the seats and throw in soccer balls or put the seats up and bring in three rows of kids to the soccer game, right? And uh, and when you think about all the use cases for a car, right, you're actually going to see that uh, what defines an individual car, every single individual car, is the individual needs okay. that it serves, yes. right? And And unfortunately, when we believe in our heads that we have to define our restaurants based on the food we choose to serve and the service format we choose to provide and uh, uh and and those are the key definitions for uh you know w- what people get out of a restaurant we're actually missing uh the boat and the boat is the you have to have your eye on the bullseye and that is what need are you fulfilling that is different and 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 deeper more deeply fulfilled than everybody else okay and so for me cars okay and restaurants are both uh, solving human needs. I would call a restaurant a solution provider. Yeah, so now you're getting into Maslow's hierarchy. hierarchy I, right? I am, yeah. okay? And so where, where experience uh, uh, always uh, uh, bothers me is it's sort of like, an, it's sort of like a cloud, right? It's, it's hard to penetrate what actually underlies that that allows us to see what we need to do to get on that higher trajectory yeah and it's it, what when i got into that section of the book yeah and again like you're reading your book just reinforce so many of the things that i've learned that I haven't quite been able to you know articulate as well as you did in this book like i always say that um eating out has more to do with psychographics than it does with experience or food or anything it's what does being seen in your restaurant say about me right and my beliefs and what i think is important and if you can tap in and that's that comes back to the human needs sides of things like how am i seen how how am i perceived how how do people what do people think of me like what am i so like and you you talk about this in the book is you get you got to figure out what people's needs are and to serve those needs and that's your goal and and people all need to be seen and recognized and ident- they, we all have a, an identity that we need to feed uh, absolutely and 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 so here's where it gets a little more complicated what Eric's alluding to to understand restaurants that are not fast food because we can all picture what the need cases are the need states that are fulfilled by fast food I'm I'm hungry and I need to fuel up quickly and keep moving, right? That's a physiological need. I need to need. save time. Yeah, it's a physiological need of I need food quickly. Yeah. I'm hungry and it's uh, I need to save time. I need to move on quickly, right? Yeah. But and there's other needs. But there are other higher level needs, yeah. right? And and so you go to the French Laundry or Noma or Next or Alinea or any of these destination fine dining restaurants to go to the opposite end of the spectrum, yeah. right? And you say, oh, they they don't provide any, they don't solve any needs. They're just there to provide people with like great experiences yeah. or whatever, right? And that that reality is the base layer, folks, of why people go to restaurants. Every single restaurant is they think that restaurant, given all their conditions in the moment, who they're with, what they got going on, is the best place for them to go to solve some specific human need they they have. And so for Noma, right? What needs could they possibly serve when I'm spending, you know, a thousand dollars a person wanting you add wine onto it, right? <laughs> yeah. Forget the travel costs, 
and and uh, and they're solving two very distinct human needs. One is the one that Eric is alluding to, which is esteem. Right? Yeah. We are we're animals, right? Yeah. We go back to the, the time when we were in caves, right? And people, there's been anthropological studies, right, that show that uh, there were people that had certain corners of the cave which were better corners, and in those corners of the cave, there actually have been found more little items that were jewelry-like than in other corners of the cave that were less uh, uh, worthy of people, right? Yeah. And so... Cave, Actually, cave social status or, or exactly class. right. Yeah. Okay, and so uh, there's this need called this need of human esteem to feel respected. Okay, to feel superior, to feel uh, uh, worthy. Right, and you know when I went to the French Laundry, and I put on social media for my friends that I was at the French Laundry. I took some food photos. That was me being. A, a very biological human of I've I've arrived right yeah. and uh, and I look back on that now I'm like okay that was pretty superficial but that is human that's why we buy uh, watches that we can't afford and we buy sneakers that we probably don't need to pay for you know and and so forth and so on so many of our consumption decisions are around establishing our identity so that people esteem us, yes, right? Yes, Okay, social currency. And the the other need that Noma or the French Laundry or these other restaurants fulfill is, is that of self-actualization, right? And self-actualization is actually the highest level of human needs, right? And, uh, and self-actualization is this idea that I want to feel like I'm, I'm becoming a, a more evolved person, yeah. right? And when you go to a museum or you want to, you bring your child to a museum, they're fighting and screaming, they don't want to go, right? You are trying to elevate their openness and their thinking and their appreciation for things, right? And you're trying to do the same thing for yourself. And, uh, and the super destination fine dining restaurants are our equivalent in our business of a museum, right? They're about us going and understanding uh, where food is is going, what the future of it is, how it tells a story in novel ways, and how these chefs that are preparing it are changing the world, right? And that makes us feel like we're becoming more evolved. We're satisfying that need to self-actualize, okay? So whether you are a casual uh, restaurant or a fast casual restaurant or fast food restaurant or some hybrid, you are solving, first and foremost, uh, certain needs, and they're all broken down in the book by class of, of restaurant, right? But our leaders figured out how to solve either A, those needs better than anybody else, okay? Because you can't be the best hamburger on the planet. There's, it's too subjective. Yeah, or right? a whole new need, right? Right. Or they have blended a couple different need states, and they, they have niched down to so- solve esteem... And and uh, uh, and physiological needs at the same time. So think of Chick Fil A. Yeah, Chick Fil A says, "Oh, you can still come in and eat quickly, physiological need, but uh, we have Christian principles and we're closed on Sundays, and we have our eye on uh, on on people that believe that Christian principles in, in in business are 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 perfectly fine and they're not a bad thing, right? And and therefore people that uh, that." Uh, felt kinship with that, felt esteemed by Chick-fil-A, Yeah, right? And they awarded Chick-fil-A with their business, 
Yep. Right? Yep. And, and you can say the same thing about the, the farm to table movement where people who have esteem to say, hey, I want to be associated with this idea that we need to change our, you know, our carbon footprint on the earth. And when I go here and I eat here, this is going to feed my self-esteem, my, my self-actualization to yep. say that I'm a better person for making conscious Absolutely. capitalistic decisions. And I think conscious capitalism is if it, I think, be, I think the future is comp- conscious capitalism. I think that people are going to figure out exactly what we're talking about and they're going to say what change needs to happen in the world and how can we be a part of that change? So who people who believe that, who share our belief in this change that needs to happen will choose, will be self-aware, conscious about their purchasing decisions so they can show the world that they are in it too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and below conscious capitalism, is, as you just alluded to, are are the needs of human esteem and self-actualization, right? Yeah. And and therefore, uh, so I, I have a friend who, and we haven't gotten to my restaurant yet, but right. <laughs> I, I have a friend who I, I love dearly, and but he's not like a foodie at all, right? And I, I started an extremely foodie restaurant. And <laughs> he came in, and we had like this countertop that uh, people would sit at. This is the most expensive meal in in this market. Do okay? me a favor, pull that mic down just a little bit. Yeah. So this is the most expensive. You're starting to sink into that chair. Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> this is the most expensive meal in this market, and the guy comes in and he sits at this counter where the chefs are on the other side, and uh, and he pulls out a cell phone to watch a, a game, right? And so for him, and he's going to remain anonymous, he could give a crap about farm to table. It's not it's not important to his esteem, right? His esteem was around whether he was going to win fantasy football that day. Yeah. Right? And uh, his self-actualization, being a better person, also to some extent was tied up in, you know, being involved in this community of, of people that were all trying to beat one another, right? And select the best players and sort of be the best versions of themselves in terms of winning winning the pot. And, uh, and so whether it's conscious capitalism or whether it's anything else – you are going to get people that don't appreciate you because they don't have those same needs that you are solving for, right? And that's okay. Uh, it's okay for a segment of people to become your fans, like in Chick-fil-A's uh, uh, place. In fact, that's what you want initially. You want people who are fanatical and they're hardcore small group because when you have a hardcore group of fans based on conviction early on, then that can bleed into other groups over time, yeah. right? And um, uh, uh, and but you can't get there if you're not solving uh, a need or a blend of need states better than anybody else. Yeah, man, we're covering a lot. Uh, we still have even talked about your some of your, your, the restaurants that yeah. you you basically you figured all this stuff out, and now you said I want to test these theories. Yeah. Right. Um, before we get into that, though, there's one thing we haven't talked about that I thought was really kind of interesting that I'm, I kind of wanted to push back a little bit. Yeah. So on that note of this law of diminishing returns, you said you point out in the book that the secret to overcoming the law of diminishing returns is to constantly grow. You have to be constantly scaling, constantly growing, getting bigger. Um, I guess one of my thoughts on that is 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 that did I did I get that correctly? Did I absorb that message correctly? So. Uh, I would say it a little bit differently. How would you say it? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I think that, unfortunately, most restaurateurs uh, haven't really understood concisely what their biggest challenge is, right? And 
underlying this idea of this, we have this bell curve of growth and, and actually we need to fix that bell curve if we want to outperform the market, right? Uh, and there are reasons why we need to outperform the market, which we can get to in a moment. But uh, uh, un- under underneath that, what is what is the problem, okay? And the, the problem is that when you first open up, you have a bunch of new customers coming in, right? And a certain percentage of them convert to loyal customers, right? And um, and the more loyal customers you have over time, the larger your business can become, correct? But as our novelty wears off, right, and we hit the top of that bell curve, we start to come down, what's happening is your rate of attraction of new customers is starting to slow down, right? And therefore, the the number of loyal customers you're converting is also slowing down, even if your conversion percentage is the same, right? Yep. Just because it's a numbers game, right? And at some point, that for all of us, that runs up against a wall of we have a certain percentage of loyal customers that start to diminish away, right? And it's sort of like a drain in a bathtub, right? We are constantly trying to keep as many new customers coming in to build as many loyal customers as we can uh, uh, to keep the water level above the height of the drain. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and the water's drying out because we're losing, people are changing habits, they're moving away, they don't like something that happened in your restaurant, and so forth and so on, because there's never there's perfection. There's a billion different things, right. infinite amount of things yeah, that Yeah, infinite number of things yeah. that will change I'm habits. I'm going on a diet. Exactly. Yeah. Everything. So you're going to have people whose habits are diminishing away from you for whatever reason, right? And you are now in this battle where your novelty is no longer enough to produce enough loyal uh, new customers to get enough loyal customers to really outpace materially the number of customers you're losing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and now you're stuck. And that's where most of us get stuck in market rate or more or less market rate growth for the long term, right? And so uh, when I say you have to keep growing, right, what, what you're saying about keep growing is, no, I'm saying you actually have to keep finding ways to speed up the number of new customers that are coming in, Right. And keep finding ways to increase your conversion rate to loyal customers, yeah. So that you are always able to outpace, yeah. Okay, and uh, the diminishing customers. And, and if you can get to a point where your new customers are coming in at a rate bigger than your physical space can handle, then it makes sense to scale and grow because you want exactly to capture exactly right, exactly yeah. right. So you're you're pushing against all the, the the limits of your the physical limits of your your business, right? But once you pushed against that edge, now you can you can expand, right? So I guess one of the, the and I wrote this in the in the uh, front of the book. Um, so what if people don't want to grow? So what if you if your desire is to be a small mom and pop who has your loyal customers and you're just happy being small? Yeah, is that a is that a scenario that's possible? Yeah. So. Um, uh, it's absolutely a scenario, uh, and what I would say is some people can can hold to that for many, 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 many years, right? Uh, but uh, they are creating a risk on themselves, unfortunately, mm-hmm. right? Because those businesses that are actually pursuing innovation that leads to more new customers coming in because new customers are alerted by innovations, which are pattern breaks, right? Um are going to become more and more competitive at helping you to diminish your customers, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're pulling customers away from you as they're offering 
different uh, uh, um, uh, alert signals that they've broken some patterns that are interesting. I want to go check them out, right? Yeah. And so in your uh, holding in your neutral pattern, you uh, have some risk that over time somebody's going to come in and they're going to be able to take more of your customers away than you can afford uh, to happen, right? And unfortunately what happens is uh, there is that old axiom, if you're not growing, you're dying, right? And uh, and we see this time and time again. It, somebody might be able to hold on for 15 or 20 years, okay? Because their small town doesn't change much, right? But then in one day, everything changes. Yeah. I guess the thought that I had was if it's true that in order to sustain, you have to grow, then is the system inherently broken for people who just want to do their thing. And maybe if that's the case, if you're somebody who just wants to do your thing, then maybe you shouldn't be an owner. Maybe you should be an employee, right? Like maybe that the, the, the world of ownership isn't for you. But if that's the case, if we can't just be small mom and pops and just do our thing, is the system broken? Is capitalism broken? Is ca- is, is capitalism inherently just not going to work because like we're not hardwired as human beings to constantly be reinventing, re redefining ourselves changing ourselves sometimes people just want to fucking be who the hell they are yeah we're human beings yeah yeah you Um, know we're not human changers yeah like so capitalism is a destructive uh, uh, type of model right and i'm not saying i'm I'm not trying to be a come off as a huge lefty right now no no like no but you're right it's it's listen i have many uh small uh uh restaurant uh, tours that I speak with quite a bit, and they're all facing the dilemma that you're identifying, right? And that is, actually, I just wanted to like be a part of my community, yeah, right. I want to scale and I want to make, I, but I want to have an opportunity to make a decent living, right? And um, and my answer is, capitalism is destructive, and unfortunately, you're either destroying, you know, other people's models, and you're scaling up your own. Or you are at risk, maybe not today, uh, but you're at risk of being on the bad end of that. Yeah. Okay? Uh, and that's just the reality. And and part of that formula is, as we all know, the more that we grow, the more economies of scale we get. And so our, fi- our financial metrics start to get better so that we can reinvest and make improvements at a faster rate than those that are holding the status quo. And so just in that alone... We are setting ourselves up for being uncompetitive in terms of being able to reinvest and improve our business compared to others, right? Yeah. Uh, and so small businesses are must be started, unfortunately, uh, if you want to make them sustainable in terms of providing a good income for your family over the long run as businesses to grow into bigger businesses and then bigger businesses and then bigger businesses. Um the the game always is eventually those who become global brands win, right? And uh, unless, but what if that, it, 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 if that's the game they're playing though, right? But is there a different game that you can win in a different game where maybe is it why not play the game of I don't want to change and I want to see if I can stay and live my modest lifestyle, live my you know my seventy thousand dollar a year income lifestyle where I have, you know, my $250,000, $300,000 home where I'm yeah. in the middle of nowhere and I'm happy. Okay. So um, 
Shall we introduce some macro finance for a moment? <laughs> I mean, maybe. But no, no, no. I, I want to go to go. I want to go to this. This is important. Are we for talking about the three here. categories? No, no. We're talking okay. about we're, folks. We're, we're going to talk about something that's not in the book, but I, uh, everybody should understand, right? Um, the inflation rate we've all been hearing this recently has been getting uh, higher, right? And that means that that uh, under Eric's example, that seventy thousand dollars you're making, uh, according to the official infl- infl- inflation rate, is actually going to be worth you know, $65,000 next year in spending power, right? And then $60,000. And unfortunately, uh, the world has changed over the last, really since 2008, and COVID accelerated it, where there's so much uh, fresh money in the economy in every single market in the the world because they're all uh, increasing their money supplies that the, the value of the dollar is decreasing in terms of purchasing power. And that means if you're holding an income level uh, and you run that out 10 years actually that $70,000 is probably worth on a compounded basis $15,000 10 years from now right yeah and so even when inflation was in normal levels let's call it one one and a half percent right but on a compounded basis if you're holding at roughly the same income you know every few years you're actually seeing a fairly dramatic uh, ability uh, a, a attack on your disposable income for things beyond necessities, right? If if things are getting more expensive, then shouldn't we also increase our our costs, our prices, our, our prices? Yeah. Uh, no, Isn't that we, the, we, the natural solution? To it, that? it is the natural solution. But um, and and as I've told many restaurateurs over the last couple of years, you know, you need to be increasing your prices probably every quarter. Okay. Yeah. Uh, without any sort so of that way, people shame. don't get hit with the the one dollar up check. Uh, Maybe a five cents exactly here. a five cents here, five cents there. But yeah. also just because it's it, it's moving, the cost of living is moving even quarter by quarter right now. Yeah. Right, um, especially right now with COVID. Especially right now. Yeah. Okay, but it's there's a, there's a super debt cycle that's going on where it's actually not going to slow down. Okay, and that's because there's so much debt, so much interest on the debt that uh, it's a snowball effect where they just have to keep putting more and more and more money into the system just to cover. Uh, interest payments. So inflation is not going to materially uh, change unless there's some technological uh, revolution that makes everything more efficient. The, You're going to get into blockchain, aren't you? I, well, we could, <laughs> but I wasn't intending to. But I was just sort of throwing it out there. We're, we're, it's a hope and a prayer that there's going to be so much technological <laughs> yeah. change, right? Well, I, I don't think it's a hope or a prayer. I think it's inevitable if you talk about Moore's Law, it's going to happen. Well, it's going to happen. I, yeah. I agree. But I, 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 what I'm trying to say to people is I don't think we should wait for that, Right. And so the only thing you can do is – so if you if you look at analysts and economists who are not part of the federal government, they're saying actually real inflation is, is 10 to 15 percent right now, okay? And there are all sorts of ways that, that you, can, you can see how the, the formal calculation of uh, 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 factors that go into it are, are undercounting it. And so what that means is your revenue needs to increase by 10 or 15 percent a year – just so you can hold steady state, and that what that means is you need to increase your your what you pay everybody by ten or fifteen percent a year, just so they can hold steady state, right? And if you can't hold steady state, then you're in trouble. And so, somebody who is growing quickly, like Chipotle, right, is able to a get more and more and more efficiencies and invest in more and more efficiencies, so that they have fewer people and they can therefore pay people more right uh and so they can continue to outgrow their same stores every year compared to the rest of the market so they they have more resources and so what happens is with the 
the scenario of I just want to hold on to my my restaurant that produces more or less the, the same amount of money for me, maybe a little bit more every year, is uh, your ability to afford labor, your ability to afford new technologies. Your it won't ability, be there. It won't be there compared yeah. to everybody else. And and I, again, there are many restaurants in small towns that will hear this and say, yeah, but nobody ever comes to my town. And then I'm going to say, actually, ghost kitchens are coming for you, right? Yeah. And, and so uh, bigger brands are going to be able to come into your market very inexpensively. And so things are on the there's, – there's a new age for restaurants that's unfolding right now. It's an entirely new age we've never seen before. And we've just now seen the shadows of it. Uh, and it's it's going to force people to accelerate their focus on. Food, I think on the growth. only thing working in our in small independent restaurant owners' favor is conscious capitalism, because I think that if we start communicating to the consumer that you think you need all these things, but the reality is, you think you need convenience, right? You think you need to be able to open your phone, push a button, and with literally not taking your hand off your th- like your lap be able to order food you think you need that but you don't necessarily need it it's not a like a it's not something that we if that goes away tomorrow we're still gonna be alive right yeah and i think what's happening is we're being told we need these things because these billion dollar organizations are telling us marketing us spending all the the majority of the expenses for third party are going to telling you you need it yeah right and i think that we need to kind of wake people up and say do you need to be able to push a button, one push of a button to that remembers your order exactly and where you live? Do you need that? And if you do need that, at what cost? Yeah. So I, I listen in terms of local independent restaurants. I I, I agree with you a hundred percent, hundred percent with the following caveat. So I'm going to give you an example. Right. Um, I will pay more. To go to a local restaurant, I like to sit at, at the countertops. It's always been a thing for me. So I like to sit. My wife and I will go sit like at the bar, have a glass of wine, leave the kids at home, right, and and like to eat at the bar and talk to the bartender who's there behind the bar, right. And the um, and I will pay more gladly without even thinking about it if I know that bartender and we have a history together, right. And I had a place like that. Uh, uh, we still haven't even gotten into your places. Yeah, well, know, no, I'm but I'm not talking about one of my restaurants. Oh, okay. I'm talking like a, a, a place I would go to all the time you, you for that, right? And, um, but the day the bartender leaves, I was willing to pay more for the human relationship. That's not why for, I go places. Yeah, not for the physical space. Yeah, right. And um, and if you cannot afford. Those employees, because they are going to other industries because they need to make more money or they're going to other brands that are growing faster and can give them career tracks that you can't give them, and you're leaving that bartender stuck in a dead-end same job for 10 years, right? Then he's gonna, he or she is going to leave at some point. And that relationship I had with the restaurant was based on that person literally knowing my name, knowing my history, recommending TV shows to me, you know, talking about the concerts that we both went to. See, that is a need. Well, it is. It's love and belonging. That's a need. It is a need. But if we're just sticking to this example of I don't want to grow my restaurant, I want to sort of keep a steady state, it it becomes really hard to keep that, that human relationship side on your side of the counter, right, as a restaurateur. If... You can't give people career tracks and more and more allow them to survive. 
Okay, the yeah, more money. I'm happy you're going this career track. So when I think of growth, yeah. I think of creating opportunity for other people. Right. And that's the kind of growth that I want people to think of, that your ability to give other people growth will in return give you So how, how do you do that in the scenario of I don't want to change my restaurant? You can't. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. Right? And so you're killing yourself. But you can say small if you want to and by giving somebody else an opportunity because if they scale and go on and do their own thing, and if you foot the bill for that, they're going to bring in another channel of revenue for you because you're going to have a, a stake in that business maybe as an operating partner. Like you can... You can bring people up. You can invest in them for a percentage of their business, right? Or you can share ownership in that business because you helped them. Like you were their investor. So you can create other channels. You can, and there's other ways of creating wealth. That I think that's another big problem with restaurant owners. We only think of one channel of revenue. You know, there's multiple ways that you can develop assets for yourself. And I think we need to start thinking about that type of thing too. Or even just passive income using our assets. We don't think like this. Yeah. We need to start thinking differently to create multiple channels of revenue or even just using our brand to be an affiliate marketer of a tool or service that we can have other restaurant owners use, right? Yeah. We just we, we get in these boxes and we think the only way to make money is to increase our profit. You know, like yeah. our from our one business doing business this one way, taking 15%, that's ours, that's the only way to make money. Yeah. There's so many ways to make money. Well, well, there there are, and you know, I I eventually became CFO of that publicly traded company, so I'm a finance guy at the end yeah. of the day. And 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 most restaurateurs, unfortunately, don't understand that there's a business for you on the P and L side of your business, and there's also a business for you on the balance sheet side of your business, yeah. right? And they might understand it to the extent that oh, I'm going to buy my restaurant real estate, right? And therefore, at the end of my career, I'm going to be able to sell it. Okay, um, but actually, when you when you measure out, it's usually not the best investment because people who buy the restaurant at the end of your career, right, are discounting to some extent based on the rent that you should have paid yourself, right? And so you're not getting full value for the real estate which an investor would pay if it was generating separate income, like rental income. And you're not getting full value for the the, the cash flows. There's there's sort of self discounting, okay? Got it. And um and so it, it it's often better to actually go buy some other revenue generating real estate that just pays a rental income, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, continue trying to negotiate the best lease you can. So, um, but there's a balance sheet side uh, uh, to the business. Regardless, I would say my general rule of thumb is. Um, uh, the lower your income uh, over time, the higher your risk of losing that uh, that income altogether. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No. And people just need to understand that risk when they're making those decisions. Um, and uh, and they also need to understand that when they want to sell their business eventually, what are, what are people buying? People are buying systems, processes. Culture. Well, no, what, but what investors pay for are your future, future cash yeah. flows, right? And uh, and they want to know that they're buying future cash flows that should be growing, right? But if you don't have a history of growing those cash flows at ten or fifteen percent a year for many years, but they're just sort of growing at one or two percent, then they're not going to pay. A, uh, they're going to pay one times multiple, maybe two times multiple, right? Versus a high growth restaurant business that's been growing at a fast rate for many years and is able to add other units and bring that concept to other places, private equity will pay as much as eight times 
uh, uh, EBITDA or owner's take, okay? And so, you know, your restaurant doing $70,000 a year might get $140,000 less debt, right? And somebody else's restaurant who is doing $300,000 a year won't get that two times. They won't get $600,000. They might get five times, right? So uh, they're getting a much higher multiple than you off of a higher level income, and that's all their re- retirement package. Yeah. Okay. Can you believe we've been on this this now recording for about two hours? No. It's crazy how fast it Didn't goes we just by. get started? We just did. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it goes by so fast. Yeah, we yeah. haven't even... I do want to make sure we, we talk about yeah. you taking a lot of these lessons and applying yeah. them to yeah. your concept. You went back to Panama. Yeah. Yeah. What I would say, first of all, is there, there are a number of first principles in this book that we haven't really even scratched the surface of. And, um, and, and people really... Uh, if you if you want to um, develop your business to its highest potential, you need to understand how our leaders have universally all practiced uh, uh, different approaches to get there, right? And if you are just sort of looking at your neighbors and seeing what they're doing, you are failing to recognize what you don't know, Right. And that's why I had that mantra at the beginning, which is we all have to recognize by looking at models how far much ahead they are compared to us. There's a huge knowledge gap. We don't even know all the questions, right? And so this book tries to give you all the questions you're not asking for yourself and and helps you to gives you the answers to those questions and then shows you how to actually uh, how to actually work to put these things into your business, translate them into your business. Okay, so. Leaders have to be our models because they're the ones who've actually gotten the results. What I did as I was starting to have these principles is I had a long history with all these countries, uh, uh, but one country that I had a much deeper relationship with was Panama. And I was uh, back in Panama. I was walking around this old colonial part of the the town, uh, but it was still a fringe area and there were gang, actually gangs in in the area. And, um, uh, And I was actually thinking about do i buy like a, a building here and this is there's gonna be some path of progress here eventually and and i stopped in this hole in the wall little restaurant uh and there's one person who worked in the restaurant who was the maitre d the cook the waiter the you know most cashier. restaurant owners were in covid19 yeah yeah <laughs> right exactly and in this case the guy wasn't even the owner okay he was just the guy and um uh, and I started asking him a couple questions about the neighborhood, and I was looking at some real estate. And he said, "Well, if you want to buy something, this restaurant's for sale." And you know, and I, I basically said, "You know, I'd been thinking about taking the principles I had and putting them in the restaurant, and I'd been into a restaurant of my own, but I actually hadn't connected it yet to a physical place, and all that cemented in that moment." Mm-hmm. And I and I said oh my God, I can put a restaurant in gang territory where you should never put a restaurant, <laughs> yeah. okay? And in the worst possible conditions, I can try to prove uh, all of these principles that I've been, I've been working on, okay? And, um, and so I, I, I spoke to, there were two owners. There's the owner of the restaurant, and then there's the, the landlord, right? And the landlord had been trying to like solve this situation also because they wanted some rent, they want a sustainable restaurant. So they gone out and knocked on like subways, uh, 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 doors and other little local and every, every 
restaurant was a chain or an independent restaurant had just rejected them immediately without even going to see it because of the neighborhood, right? So they had no alternatives. And and these restaurateurs were behind on their, their payments, everything. So I, I negotiated a fair price for them, got the lease, extended the lease, and over a period of time, uh, well, I brought in a, a couple of, uh, of, of partners uh, uh, that Equity were Panamanian. Partners? Yeah, I brought in pa- Panamanian partners, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, and and I said, we, we want to break the patterns. And one pattern I want to break is I want to put the most expensive restaurant in this damn country, which I love, so I shouldn't say damn, in gang territory. I want to start there, Right. And um, and so I brought on this cook who had been a line cook, not even really a long, he'd basically done stage work in Australia, but he's Panamanian, and he'd studied at the Cordon Bleu in, in, in Sydney. Um, and he worked with some great restaurants there, but he never managed even a line, okay, let alone a kitchen. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I had him cook for me at, at his house and, and some of my friends, and, uh, and he just did this incredible job is very young, and so I gave him a path to to uh, uh, equal equity. I financed him an opportunity for growth, an opportunity for ownership. Yeah, well, so, personal growth and personal growth, yeah. right? And he turned out to be phenomenal to work with because, like you and I are aligned right now, this young kid uh, was very much a sort of progressive forward uh, thinker, yeah. right? And we just started exploring pattern break after pattern break after pattern break after pattern break. And uh, and we said, well, what is happening in Panamanian cuisine is what happened in many parts of the world. And that is, it's basically country cuisine. It's, it's starchy, fried, heavy, and it hasn't changed in centuries, okay, <laughs> literally. So what a farmer would eat in the country is what people were eating in the city. It was just like, you know. Uh, um, uh, what is that chain? Like Roy Rogers, you know, that chain, you're just moving it to a city. It's still that same Roy Rogers food, right? And so we raised a series of questions for ourselves around these principles. And one of the, one of the questions was, how do we do the opposite of this pattern, right? And the opposite was, well, we can try to make it very light fare. We can try to make it gourmet fare. And then we said, well, what are some of the other challenges in the market? It's a very diverse market. People don't realize this, but it's sort of like a microcosm of what happened in the United States. Many different immigrants and waves of immigrants Melted from all over the world, yeah. right? And So I had no like culinary identity. The, no culinary identity, exactly. But an abundance amount of food. But like, like yeah, not like totally like no uh, big plates Noma. of food. Yeah, big like, plates of food. There wasn't scarcity. <laughs> no, there wasn't scarcity. Yeah. Uh, but most of the ingredients were ingredients that had been brought from other parts of the world, and they were just locally farmed. But right? there was scarcity in something. Well, there, so there, there was scarcity of, of native, native endemic ingredients making their way into the food, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and, but most of all, what sort of the question we came up with was um, the, the food that Panamanians eat today tells the story of Panama's rural farming past. How do we tell stories every day of where Panama has come from, where it is today, and where it's going, reflecting all of its diversity, right? And and we said, actually, we don't serve food. We're going to serve stories, mm. right? And and that became our pattern break. We're not 
in the restaurant business to serve food. We are in the restaurant business to serve stories that collectively in a single sit-down fixed-price meal, 10 plates are going to tell the whole history of the country and the whole sort of ethnic diversity of the country, right? What, what need was that serving? Yeah, so this is that's a, that's a great question. Um, so in esteem, right, because they're really just five core needs when you look at, at Maslow's hierarchy – uh, for Panamanians, it was serving pride. Okay, identity, identity. Okay, what would happen? What we noticed in the market is people would come from different parts of the world to visit their Panamanian friends, or they they come for business and they'd have Panamanian counterparts, and they weren't taking them out for Panamanian food, even though the visitors wanted to try the local cuisine. They were taking them out to the best Italian restaurant, the best French restaurant. <laughs> Right, because they didn't think that their food was elevated enough to to Stand provide a special yeah. experience, yeah. okay, to these folks. And so we said, actually, what we want to do is we want to serve something that they're so proud of that they want to bring every visitor here, okay. And and so we want to tell every different Panamanians story through the place we serve. And so when we came up with a plate, it would have some essence of Panama to it. It could have been a traditional recipe. It could have been ingredients that they saw in their childhood, right? Uh, but it could have been something reflective of their Chinese Panamanian history, right? Or their Kuna, which is a local indigenous group, Panamanian history, or their Af- Afro-Caribbean Panamanian history, right? And we would we would elevate that plate like it had never been elevated before, our version of Noma, right? And we would then tell our clients the history of, of that part of Panama through that plate in a very straightforward 30-second uh, speech. Now, you're, you're wondering, how do we do that, right, for everybody? And so what I would say is, folks, every time you step onto new ground, you find the next new ground to step on, right? And it sort of forces you when you innovate where nobody else has innovated before to keep innovating until your solution is holistic, right? And so we said, well, if we're going to serve stories, the only way to do this efficiently is everybody has to eat the same thing at the same time, right? And So, so, so it's like a theater almost. Almost like a theater. And, and so everybody who came in had to show up at 7 p.m. or 9 p.m., in fact, they came 15 minutes late. We shut the doors. We wouldn't let them in, okay? And um, and I'll tell you how we enforce that in a moment. So that was another pattern break. We are telling Panamanians who were not famous for their punctuality on the, on the opposite. No, actually, if, if you don't show up on time, we're closing the door. And if you show up at 7.05, you can still come in, but you miss the first plate, mm. okay? And, uh, and so uh, we were serving stories that, that – together put together a narrative of the country on 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 uh fixed price meals that would change every few months right so we'd launch new menus right and um and then we started imposing a series of rules on the market to uh uh to ensure that the business would uh uh, uh would be continually pattern breaking okay so you want to come here you're going to pay in advance never happened right um do you want to come eat the most expensive meal in the country, you're coming to gang territory. By the way, we don't have a sign on the door. There's no sign, okay? So you got to come find this place yourself in yeah. gang, gang territory and, uh, and so forth and so on, right? Uh, until we had so many rules and people who had never had to jump through rules 
ever because it was easy to get in any restaurant. There wasn't the scarcity. We're jumping through all sorts of pattern-breaking rules to get into to such an extent. Remember, they're paying up front yeah. that we were booked every single seat three months in advance. Every single seat. The How highest seats? Well, it was up to 21. Okay. It's tiny, okay? Two turns a night. Two turns a night, okay? Five, ter- five, uh, five nights a week, okay? No lunch. But you have to understand, people are paying three months in advance for a, a table. So you're liquid. Well, yeah, it totally changed the cash flows of the business because we were only buying inventory for whoever had paid. Yeah. So not only are we discussing how you're using juxtaposition. Uh, I can't say that Juxtaposition. Word. Juxtaposition. Uh, not only are you um, tapping into the need that people didn't realize they needed, yeah. right? Identity and uh, what was the other word you well, used? Well, it was esteem. esteem. And, and also, so for visitors, it was self-actualization. We became that museum-quality restaurant where they could now – understand the local culture better than any other restaurant could gift them pretty much every any place on the planet in my opinion because we actually became the most dedicated storyteller you've ever seen in the yeah. restaurant space you're right? breaking habits totally breaking habits yeah. right uh and the other thing that we really didn't get too much into in, um in today's conversation is you're you're changing the the business model yes you're not you're throwing the old business model out the window and you're saying you pay us now yeah we're not going to let you let us lose our real estate if you don't show up and sit in that seat. Yeah. You pay us now, yeah. whether you show up or not, no refunds, whether you're five minutes late or not, you're paying for that first course still if you don't eat it. Yeah. And I think this is what we need to do. We have been so reactive to the market that we let them tread all over us. Yeah. I think it's time to push back and say, no, we need to be profitable and you need to respect our business well, and well, our profits. I, what I would say is rules are financially valuable just in that they differentiate you. Yeah. Right? And of course, you have to have the 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 underlying product has to uh, uh, has to have some value for people, right? But if you impose a little bit of scarcity, you can impose rules, and people will fight to get in, right? Yeah. And and every single thing I talked about was a, was a cultural truth being broken. Oh, a restaurant has to have a sign. No, it doesn't have to have a sign. A restaurant that is the most expensive restaurant in the country has to have a host station and a hostess. No, we didn't have either either one, right? We just opened the doors at six fifty nine and closed the doors at yeah. seven fifteen. How much money did you put into this restaurant? If you don't mind me asking, yeah, the- we so we put in only a hundred and forty thousand dollars. Damn. Okay, U.S. or is that Panay- U- Panay- U.S. Okay, okay, and with well, I, no I bet- with no marketing budget, no PR budget, we got written up all over the world, and the fifty best named us on their discovery series within. I think that was year two, year two, year three, okay? And and then we we founded, uh, as a group, the, a second restaurant that broke patterns in, in different ways. In Panama? Yep. yep. And that restaurant also got named on the Discovery Series, which there might be others, but I'm not aware of two restaurants from the same group being on their Discovery Series list, right? That's beautiful. Um, that restaurant... Second restaurant, which, by the way, uh, New Worlder, which I don't know if you know them. But they're like a great international foodie magazine. Uh, uh, they named us one of the 15 most important restaurant openings of the world throughout the Americas. We spent forty to $50,000 in the second restaurant. Wow. No, no budget for anything. Well, but I'm the sure. pattern breaks, sorry, the pattern breaks brought the media on top of us. Yeah. Okay? That's the point. Yeah. Great lessons. Um, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Are there any truths that we did not touch on that you were hoping to bring to the surface today? 
there you know what there are a number of them there there are literally a a hundred different lessons around outperformance and and truth truths and truth breaking in the book it literally numbers out to 100 and um and what i would say is uh read the book take the notes in the margin and uh and 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 treat it with um the dignity that uh, the lessons that are gifted from our restaurant leaders deserve because uh, because they're the ones who've actually made it. You know, coaches, consultants, uh, your friends down the street at other restaurants, local marketing groups, they haven't made it that far. So if you want to model correctly, you have to model based on the right number of people, or the right, the right people. Sorry. Yeah. Um, we still haven't named the name of these restaurants yet. I mean, you said... I, yeah, so I, I so the first restaurant is called Donde Jose, okay? <laughs> which, it's uh, the first time I'm hearing the name of the yeah, restaurant. Yeah, isn't that funny? But you can look it up. Okay, so Donde Jose um, is... Uh, so remember I brought on uh, some equity partners. I brought on this young cook. And I didn't want the restaurant to be about me. I'm not a Panamanian. This is telling Panamanian stories. So I, I... Went to Jose and Alberto, my 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 other partner and a, and a really good friend of mine, and and I said I want to name this place Jose's Place, okay? I want to name the most expensive restaurant in the country Jose's Place, which is what Don Jose means, which is the name of the chef, okay? okay? And uh, the second restaurant is named Lo Que I, which means uh, whatever we have. Right? I finally found the one page that gives like the details that I was like, this isn't, it's in the very back of the book that yeah, I, yeah. I didn't read the, about the author yeah. section. I'm, yeah. I'm, Sorry. Uh, I, I was more about the content <laughs> than about me. Uh, the, um, but Lokei basically means whatever we have. Right. And it, it's sort of a street version of Don De Jose where we're making one meal a year uh, at a, I guess what you would call a fast casual pricing. It was fast casual. It was basically counter. Uh, it was basically you walk in, you order. There's a couple of counters. You eat and you walk out. But it was like a gourmet quality uh, food at fast casual pricing uh, with no service whatsoever. Uh, and we and we served loci, whatever we made that day. And every day we made something different. Yeah. And it was all chef driven. I love that. Um, so one of the things uh, I like to resurface the mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable it's to inspire, empower, and transform the Love industry. It. And uh, you've definitely done that for us. So you've definitely inspired us. You've definitely empowered us for sure. Uh, and I'm curious, what what needs to change about our industry? What's what's broken with our industry? What needs to change? What's wrong with our industry? Yeah. So um, we do not have an education system in our industry that will enables us to really understand the most successful approaches to doing really well in this industry. And I think, Eric, you are working your butt off. I'm sharing stories, but I haven't created a system. Well, yeah, but you're, you're doing that. You're out uh, interviewing all these incredible people and allowing them uh, a platform to tell how they've done things. Uh, but we need to continue to get better and better organized at identifying the universal first principles so that everybody can like the ABCs know them. Right. And, uh, and we're not there yet. Yeah. And I think we also need to change the culture of the industry, um, into one that is about everybody else, not you. 
right? And uh, yeah. this idea that if we can change, if we can empower the industry, we can create more opportunity. If we can diversify the industry, we can create more opportunity. If we can, sh- it's all about everybody else. And if we have that mentality, yeah, then absolutely, we will be taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the uh, as I as I tell restaurateurs that that I work with, uh, your job is to find out how you are being of service to the world through your restaurant that is not just about the food and uh, and the beverage, right? But what uh, other needs you're fulfilling that relate to uh, the, the, the restaurant, okay? And when you found out how you're going to be of service to the world, you know, by solving needs, by breaking truths, so you're helping people to sort of un- uncover new ideas, uh, you, uh, you'll get there. So we identify what's broken. What are we going to do to change that? How do we create this system of universal education? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. My, my first step is publish the book and, uh, and, and beg people to understand this is not about some words that I made up, but this is about a 10 years of research of what our leaders are doing. And I'm begging everybody here to... Uh, find out, figure out what our leaders are doing. And then the next step, you know, I, I'm trying to figure that out. I'm trying to figure out is it, are, are there many, many trainings? Uh, but there's, there's challenges in our industry because as you and I have spoken about, people have their heads down, yeah, right? And they're in their stuff every day and, and we need ways for them to, people to be able to learn and put things to, to, to work quickly so that they can retain them. And there are I mean, different ways of doing that, but is it as simple as bl- making like blocking time um, for your staff and your employee to educate them. Well, that's a great point. So um, uh, let, let me talk about w- one thing that's absolutely related to that. There's something called uh, phase transitions, right? And you're either white ice or your water. You're actually uh, not in that transition between ice and water very long. So what the heck do, am I talking about? <laughs> okay. Uh, you can either operate, or you can market, or you can do re, you know market research or or innovate a product. But you can't actually do all these things at the same time, right? And and restaurateurs tend to try to multitask things, right? And what I recommend in in the book uh, at the end is you need to have dedicated learning time every single week. Okay, it's not just. Uh, thinking time, but learning time every single week. And whether that's Monday mornings for three hours uh, or whatever it is, and your job as CEO of your business is to over time grow more and more so you can pay other people to take more and more of your responsibilities so that you can increase that time when you're dedicated, you're only ice, right? You're only studying, right? Not doing 10 other things. And this is where systems, processes, procedures, you're not you can't have a people-dependent operation. You need to have a system-dependent operation. That's the hope yeah. right now is that technology is improving yes. and we can replace uh, human uh, assets with automation. And at first you hear that and you go, that's scary. But you're also simultaneously opening up human potential because you're freeing up human bandwidth to figure out and solve problems. Because how much time and energy is wasted on washing dishes and sweeping floors when you can remove that that responsibility and say, let's solve problems. Well, absolutely. There are, there are robotic tasks in the restaurant industry that 
that can be automated over time as the technology is there that will allow your other employees to think more and contribute to some of the bigger challenges and opportunities that you have and earn more for themselves. Yeah, I think we can also share more equity when we, uh, you know, we can do more with fewer people, which means more people get skin or, you know. They uh, have a lot more financial opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, agreed. Peter, I love this conversation. We do have to do a speed round. Yeah, let's do it. I'm in. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and I think you might set a record for longest episode on wrestling. Oh, my God. Sorry. But you know what? (laughs) This is exactly the direction I want to go. And from i'll take a word from danny meyer who says you can't have a three-hour restaurant podcast right? exactly right <laughs> like who like and i think people go too fast it's good to slow down it's good to pull back layers absolutely all right we'll be right back you know restaurant unstoppable's mission because i'm constantly echoing it it's to inspire empower and transform the industry and i could not be more excited to be partnering with diageo bar academy because they have the same goals in I am just filled with hope right now because never before has there been such an abundance of information and resources, and it's because things like Diageo Bar Academy exist. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better. They're constantly raising the bar on industry standards. No matter your background or your skill level, there is knowledge and new techniques for you waiting over at Diageo Bar Academy that will improve your personal and professional lives. For example, they just launched a new masterclass, Tips for Profitable Menus. With expert tips and step-by-step guidance, their experts give you all the advice you need to craft exciting and profitable menus. With this masterclass, you'll learn how to create eye-catching menu design, how to promote your most profitable drinks, how to understand pour costs and pricing accordingly, and you'll discover how to create well-designed menus that will attract new customers, exceed your regulars' expectations, and maximize upselling and revenue. And it goes far beyond masterclasses like this. You can also join live events and watch all past masterclasses on demand at www.diageobaracademy.com. Whether you're a bartender, owner, operator, or if you're just completely new to the industry, diageobaracademy.com has easy to access resources to help you learn new skills and stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Diageo Bar Academy is a free online resource for hospitality professionals of all skill levels. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or your business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make 
on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success. Try to answer these with one word or a sentence. No more. Uh, conviction. What is your biggest weakness? Uh, too creative. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing a team? Alignment. What's your biggest challenge today? Getting the word out. How are you dealing with it? Going on podcasts? Every possible <laughs> way I can, but uh, number one way uh, is sitting here with, with Eric. So yeah. bless him. <laughs> what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? Uh, a core value, a way to be, uh, a way to act uh take off time for thinking what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team so something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants not common throughout the industry be yourself what's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner obviously restaurant strong but give us another one so i think if you read uh uh setting the table five times you will actually start to see a lot more uh, than you've, you've seen the first time or two. Particularly if you read Restaurant Strong first, it will unfold a lot of the genius that Danny Myers has that is not obvious with his words. Yeah. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Uh, learn. What is one service you recommend people uh, outsource or hire? Poor. Canva. Love Canva. Everybody should use Canva. And what is Canva? So Canva, C-A-N-V-A. It's just a, a little uh, graphic design platform to... Drag and drop. Yeah, it's a, but the, all the templates, and it's super cheap. All the graphics you see for Restaurant Unstoppable were built on Canva. I love Canva. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, what is one technology that you've recently adopted within your restaurants that's had a huge impact on profitability, communications, uh, anything along those lines. So, um, uh, what I would tell everybody is that I am increasingly recommending that people investigate cloud kitchens because, and ghost kitchens because they're coming for our businesses. Yeah. So, I mean, if there's, yeah, don't even, don't get me started on that, but yes, this is the last question. It's a doozy. So get ready for it. If you got the news, You'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be gone with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those pieces of wisdom be? One-on-one counts more than anything else. 
um, the uh, the history of your relationships with people uh, matters uh, uh, incredibly. So, Eric, you're not in my relationship over many years of time has real value, right, in terms of uh, time committed. And um, get a dog. Yeah. <laughs> I've loved this conversation. I wish there I could bring a dog on the road with me. I would do it in a heartbeat. Oh, RP. God, yes. Uh, but he wouldn't be too happy or she wouldn't be too happy hanging out on my Honda Fit while I'm in the <laughs> restaurant. Um, the last question, well, I already asked you the last question, but we do wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. Yeah. So who do you respect and admire? Uh, and maybe people I should be making an example of while I'm here in Tampa for this 48 hours. Yeah. You actually already called great, them. Great, out, great, great question. So I admire uh, restaurants that are on the cusp of greatness, right? Where you actually see the change happening in their heads and their thinking and in their businesses, right? They've already gotten through the first couple phases. And in Tampa, uh, I recommend uh, four. One is uh, Lolis, which is a, an authentic Mexican fast casual uh, place, but very, very special and, and unique. Uh, and a story of immigrants like we all are. Uh, uh, another will be, uh, hail life. And this is a vegan dairy, uh, free food restriction, uh, 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 bakery cafe, uh, that is doing, uh, sexy, uh, products with all sorts of restrictions. It's really hard for one to do that. They are moving like crazy. Um, there is, are two local chefs that, uh, are already, uh, have some national awareness uh, to them. Uh, one has a restaurant named uh, Counterculture uh, that uh, I recommend you speak with them. And the other uh, has been a James Beard uh, nominee and his uh, restaurant is called Rooster in the Till. I've uh, been rated the best restaurant in Tampa for a couple of years. Uh, those are all special, special places that are on the cusp of something extraordinary. Yeah. And you've already reached out on my behalf. So a little teaser there. We're yes. going to try to do our best in the next couple hours, uh, the next days to get these folks on the show for you. And I just cannot say thank you enough. But before we say thank you, actually, I got to say, what's the best way to connect? And we'll, we'll show the book for the camera one more time. Restaurant Strong, the first principles of restaurant outperformance and how to make them work for you. There's a camera. There's a book. If you guys aren't subscribed to my YouTube channel, what the frig? Um, and how can we connect with you? So the, the easiest way is, well, first of all, if you buy the book at the end of every chapter, there's, well, there are different ways to sort of connect with my ecosystem that give you like additional case studies and things like that, right? Uh, but two is if you go to Facebook, if you're on Facebook, uh, just do a search for Restaurant Strong Community. And there are thousands of restaurant owners in that group that I, I commune with every day, basically. And we talk a lot about uh, these sorts of things. Uh, so it's free. Just go in and, and, and start getting engaged. We have a book group in there. We, have, uh, um, uh, we do interviews with, with, uh, with food critics recently. And it's just there's a lot going on that, that provides value. Um, email me. Peter at PeterLassar.com, L-E-S-A-R.com. I, I respond to emails, believe Beautiful. it or not. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, and your mentorship. There is no question, my man. You are unstoppable. Eric, you are a hero in this industry. Oh, thank so you. thank you so much for all the gifts you give everybody. It's a pleasure to serve. I really love doing it. So thank you. But yeah, awesome. <laughs> 
There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you guys all enjoyed that one. I know I did, and I realized this was a long interview, but I got to be honest, guys. I really like the long interviews. I do. You know, it's really hard to get somebody to open up in 45 minutes or, or even in an hour. Uh, when you, when you sit down with somebody for two hours, you really get to know who they are. You get to pull back the layers. You get to dive deep and you get, you get so much more value. So I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. And if you did enjoy it and you want a copy of his book, make sure you RSVP to the live Q and a in the network on December 21st at 10 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, just head over to restaurantstoppablenetwork.com. If you're not already in the network, join the network and then RSVP in the first 25 people to RSVP to that live Zoom conversation is going to get a free copy of his book. So come hang out with us. And on a more personal note, I just want to say thank you to Peter for showing me great hospitality while I was in Tampa and being so generous through network. Uh, in a really short period of time, he helped me connect with four additional restaurateurs and he drove me all around Tampa. And I really got to know this guy and I'm looking forward to continuing to get to know him. So other things happening at Restaurant Unstoppable that I'm really excited about. We're launching a new podcast. It's called The Story of Seven North. And this podcast is a standalone podcast. Uh, it's a collaboration between Restaurant Unstoppable, Sumadre, and the Seven North Coffee Company. And basically, uh, last year, about a year ago today, I went into Seven North Coffee Company. I met Doug York and I told him about my podcast and he said that he was looking to start his own podcast. He had all these audio recordings of uh, him just journaling and documenting his journey of opening a cafe during a pandemic. We took all those audio recordings. We went to the people that he referenced in those audio recordings. We interviewed them like the mentors and stuff that he went to to get advice on how to start his cafe. And we reflected on his journey. It's, it's really great. This is a narrative driven nonfiction miniseries podcast consisting of five episodes ranging from 20 to 50 minutes each. And it's going to be on its own. It's going to stand alone on iTunes, Spotify, Google play, but we're going to be promoting it on the restaurant unstoppable feed. So the first episode drops on December 20th and it will roll through the new year. And if you do not want to wait until December 20th to listen to this podcast series and you're in the network, you can go listen to it right now in the network. We actually did a pre-release in the network, uh, as a bonus for my network members. So if you are in the network and you're hearing this, then go head over to restaurantstoppablenetwork.com and go check out that podcast. And in about 12 days, you guys will have access to it right here on this feed. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.